welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host Dave Kale, and uh, after a week delay, we are back, and we continue the saga of the Noldor, just doing one horrendous thing, after, making one terrible decision after another. And this week, we're bringing to you the horror of the Kinslaying at Alcolande. This is going to be a fun one. That's I'm right. Sure my co-host. Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven, would agree with me on that one, huh, guys? That's right. You sound a little, a little too excited about it. I'm not sure. Well, I'm not you sure. know, I mean, I'm Yay! Kinslaying! <laughs> Woohoo! Well, this is a big event. It's a big, big deal. And and it's, you know, in some ways... In some ways... I was going to say, this is a must-attend event of the yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that I, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that makes the kinslaying really excited is uh, thinking about, well, first of all, thinking about being able to plan out an event, which is going to be so like knowing how pivotal it is, right? You know, knowing that like this episode is going to be you know, alluded back to for years, not by the viewers, but by like within the show, you know what I mean? It's, this is, this is going to be the turning point for so many plots. Uh, it's just a, it's just a really, a really exciting moment. Um, and, uh, and, Tony, Tony Meade says, this is the wet, red wedding on steroids. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, except without the, so here's, here's my, Okay, I was I was about to I was about to start a sentence with here's what I don't like about the red wedding, but that's probably not the, an appropriate way to start the sentence. The, what I really mean to say is the weakness I think of the red wedding and the reason that it does not fit as a parallel exactly. I mean, it, it is a parallel, of course, in some ways. But here's to me the crucial difference: the red wedding relies very largely upon surprise, right? Yeah. That is surprising the viewers, surprising the readers. And it, 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 you know, Martin pulls it off quite well. And obviously the show, you know, the show producers pulled it off quite well. But honestly, surprise is cheap. Anybody, like any author can do something out of nowhere that surprises people. You know, like uh, it's not hard to do something that people didn't see coming. If I mean, like it's that again, that, that's cheap. Um, uh, something which is like mythic something you know something which which is epoch forming but not just like a stunning surprise again like surprise is cheap and it's over fast and it only happens once right um and often i mean this is one of the reasons why people so many people don't reread like detective stories you know mysteries because once you know like once you've had the shocking reveal at the end once the shocking reveal doesn't work for you the second time or the third time right you already know it's happening and often um, not always, but often when you go back and watch those things a second time or read those things a second time, you've, it's easy to find them sort of stale and, and not very interesting. Oh, my goodness for me is I always forget. Well, right, exactly. Yeah, I actually, I, yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I sometimes have that experience too, which, which is, yeah, which is like fun. I can't remember who was the murderer. So, okay, I'm going to keep reading this book. I'm with Mike Hackstead. Mike Hackstead said, this isn't our red wedding. Red wedding was their kinslaying. <laughs> right. But see, again, like the thing about the kinslaying is that it's not, I mean, it is surprising in the sense that like it is, it is shocking, you know, um, but it's not startling. It's not like, wow, that came out of nowhere. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, inst- uh, it's this, 
in, in retrospect, tragic high point coming kind of thing, right? I mean, right. that's sort of it is. If it is surprising in the sense of you don't really yeah. see it coming ahead of time. In retrospect, you go, you know, I can, I get it, or you know, I can see why that happened, or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and. By the way, Mariel, I totally agree. I do also reread some detective stories. And again, like detective stories, like anything else, for me, that's the big test, right? I mean, if it's something that uh, is not only okay to read, interesting to read, but even better on reading it a second time, then it's good. And, and I find my personally, for me, that applies to uh, detective stories as well. So I agree. Like Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, those are you know books that I can read and reread and reread and enjoy every time. Um, but, um, anyway, anyway, uh, and for Karita and the rest of us who don't watch Game of Thrones, Karita, it's a Game of it's Thrones, a Game of Thrones thing. Don't, don't worry about the and Red I Wedding thing. I happen to know it because I don't watch it, but my gosh, I couldn't get away from it mm-hmm. on Facebook. And it Twitter was a phenomenon. <laughs> it was a phenomenon. I, I am glad I did read the, that book first so that I kind of was prepared for that phenomenon when it came around, even though I'm not following the show in real time. Yeah. As I have sworn off George, all things George R. R. Martin until it's done. Uh, when it's done, I'll go back and do it again. But I'm on. Uh, I, I'm it's taking done. a hard. You meaning the book series? Yeah. Uh huh. Now, when the films, when when the, when the TV series is done, I'll probably I'll, I'll watch that. But I'm not rereading the books until he finishes the bloody series. Like that's it. Like I'm 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 so, I'm taking a hard line. So on these authors who delay and delay the publishing of sequels, like I'm, 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 I am too old. I am too old to sit around waiting for the next book to come out. Like when he finishes the darn series, I'll read it from beginning to end. Uh, and it's the same thing. I am not reading book two of the Kingslayer Chronicles until Patrick Rothfuss puff publishes the third book in the trilogy. When he does that, I will read the second book and go through. Um, but or, or dies or dies. If they die, I'll read them too. Well, especially given that you are a person who, when a when a new book comes out of a series, you read the thing from the beginning. So imagine, I mean, I mean, I think your I think your policy is a good one because you'd have to keep rereading these books every time a sequel came out. This way, you just have to reread it once. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is you're never going to finish George R. R. Martin's. <laughs> it, you know, I, that's up to him now, isn't it? Like, it's, it's, I, don't put that on me. I think it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah, that he's not going to finish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, he's like he's not even making a good faith effort. He's currently <laughs> working on on the Fire and Blood prequel series. Right. Yeah. Like he's oh, he's just given up all hope. He's like off. He's off writing not even just new books, but new books set within the same world. He's just given up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the only hope is I I, I my my. The theory I'm subscribing to is that uh, HBO made him sign a secret contract that he wouldn't release Winds of Winter until he until they finished um, releasing the TV series. That's mm-hmm. the only hope. I'm hoping that he he actually has both manuscripts done and he's just contractually obligated not to publish them. Right. But that's yeah. probably not true. Probably yeah. he's just completely lost it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but um, uh, yeah. Oh, and. Right, Kinsley. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> we've, we've gotten distracted. Okay, that's okay because you know we are all about. 
focus and linear progression of, of thought here on this That's on right. this show. So, uh, but anyway, so thanks everybody for joining. Welcome to the Silmarillion Film Project. He says, like ten minutes into the broadcast. Um, and uh, I, one one quick announcement uh, before we start, because I want to make sure you know, something that I, I really want to share with people and <clears throat> make sure people know about, and that is, uh, uh, we are having uh, Signum and Mythgard are are, are having our first regional event we we've been talking about this for a while and wanting to you know because we've had our annual myth mood events which have been awesome uh and we've even had uh some occasional small events started up by uh our industrious folks in the mid-atlantic region um and we've been wanting for a while to have similar uh little small like one day conferences elsewhere so that people knowing that not everybody can travel uh, uh to myth mood at the time that myth mood is um but we love so much being able to connect with folks and and you know have the kinds of awesome discussions that we have when we get together for a day uh, to uh, talk about this stuff um, that we're doing this. So anyway, so so this year we are uh, we're launching our, our, our beginning, I should say, our series of regional events. And so our first ever non mid Atlantic American uh, uh, regional event uh, is happening in uh, just under a month, October 7th. So the Saturday of, uh, of uh, Columbus day weekend uh, it is, uh, it is happening. Let's see. There it is. Okay. In Iowa, it's, we're in the Midwest. We're doing our regional event in the Midwest uh, in Waterloo, Iowa. Now that might sound kind of random. Uh, and I have to admit when uh uh, this idea was first proposed to me. I was also kind of like Iowa, seriously. Like I've never been to Iowa. I never imagined myself going to Iowa. To be perfectly honest, um, I'm like, who's in Iowa? But then I was talking. The 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 person in Iowa who was proposing it to me, uh, I would uh, uh, is named Robert Steed. He's the host of the event, um, and uh, he teaches at Hawkeye Community College there in Waterloo, Iowa. Um, and their department was interested in partnering with us and and uh, and hosting the event. So I was talking to him and, and, you know, looking at the map and, and seeing that actually, okay, I, even if there might not be much in Iowa, but, but the, the location where they are in Iowa is like within three or four hour drive of three or four major metropolitan, you know, it's Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Louis are all within like three hours of this place. Uh, so I was like, okay, there's actually a lot of people who, um, uh, who are, who are from, uh, uh, who are who are around this area, and and I hope might be able to get there. So if you are in the Midwest, uh, I encourage you. This is a one day conference. Um, you can see if you go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down just a bit, and you'll see the link to uh, the event here on our little events uh, panel. Um, you can see here's the schedule for the day. It's really cheap. Registration for the conference is fifteen bucks, ten bucks if you're an undergrad, uh, and. Um, so it's just for the one day lunch is included. So 15 bucks with lunch included. Uh, and then afterwards we're going to be going over to this, uh, th- there's an arboretum nearby that has a hobbit hole and a party tree. And they're doing like hobbit golf, which may or may not include actual goblin heads. So it's going to be awesome. Um, I mean, you know, like needless to say, anyway, so you can find more information for it here. I'm ex- so I'm excited. I'm go I'm going to Iowa for the first time. Uh, I'm looking forward to going there, giving a talk, uh, uh, and having conversations with folks. So I encourage you, anybody who is anywhere around the Midwest region, uh, if you can pop in for the day, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be, 
you know, it's it's going to be easy to get to and, uh, 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 again, inexpensive and super fun. Great way to spend a Saturday. So I hope to be able to make some connections with folks in the Midwest region. So just, oh, I forgot to point out the important actionable business. This join this event button over here, of course, brings you to our registration page uh, for signing up for that conference. So. Any friends in the Midwest? If you're in the Midwest or have any friends from the Midwest, definitely, uh, definitely come and join us because it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Um, so, uh, um, very good. All right. Um, so let's move on to talking about the kinslaying. Then, all right. So, thing one. Let's talk about the problem of old way. Uh, this is uh, this is this is really important because we need to think back. We did some really interesting work in the last season, so you'll remember. I think it was episode six, wasn't it? The end of the Balerian sequence, as we were moving from Quivien uh, and across Balerian, and we were trying to do the different splitting offs of the different um, uh, of the different factions. And by the way, that series of episodes was a really fun example of like what. Uh, you know, one of the things that the film film project is kind of about, you know, one of the things that, that I think this thing can really help to do so often for people. I have literally drawn a chart, you know, like a, 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 a flow chart on chalkboards many times over my career to try to help students who are new to the Silmarillion just keep straight the different branches of the Teleri, right? You know, who are the green elves again and how are they different from the, you know, Philothrim and all that, you know, I mean, like that, that kind of thing is, uh, uh, is very, it's just often because it's one of the things that uh, new readers of the Silmar for new readers of the Silmarillion, it's often just like a list of names, right? That have to be memorized, um, and it was really fun going through that in season two and thinking about the different characters involved in the different situations. And I really liked the overall uh, sort of story that we placed that in. That this idea of sort of purpose. Remember we were talking about sort of like purpose and calling and, and understanding like where do you belong and, 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 and what your purpose is. That was, you know, one of the big overarching questions. Like what is the purpose? Where is the, um, what are, you know, sort of the elves meant to be doing, right? Are they meant to be in Middle-earth? Are they meant to be going over to Valinor? And and so, you know, finding, having having Lenway, uh, you know, meet Treebeard and find his purpose there uh, in the forests of Middle-earth, um, the whole uh, Thingol and Melian thing, right? Um, and then this final, uh, this, this, this whole plot line kind of culminated in our episode with Olway, and Kyrdin, who are of course like the they're like the last two survivors, right? Olway and Kyrdin are the last two of the leaders of the Teleri to make it all the way to the coast, and then Kyrdin decides to stay. Um, and we had it just again, many of you probably remember this more clearly than I do, but um, uh, but nevertheless, um, thinking about um, the. Uh, the visions that we had Olway and Kyrdin receive, right? That they had, uh, they both of them had visions of what their purpose was. And that, you know, that Kyrdin's purpose was to be, and you know, what Kyrdin's purpose was, we were clearer on, 
right? And that was to remain uh, in Middle Earth and to be the shipbuilder. You know, we know what Cairdyn's job is going to be, right? He is the one who serves as the bridge between Middle Earth and Valinor. Um, and we had Olway um, as uh, the other side of that plan, right? He's the one on the other side. Um, so we need to make sure to, so we have to come back and, and sort of remember this because we've left all way behind a long time ago now, right? Um, it's been quite some time since we've had, uh, any old way presence or reminders of Olway's job. Um, how would you guys want to do this? Do you think we should do a scene? Um, we could start this episode, right? Um, we could start this episode with the Teleri, just like have a like a meanwhile in Alqualande kind of segment at the beginning. Do you think we that should go that far? Way to start it, given, yeah, given the you know the end of the last episode. I think it'd be an interesting start to do that. Right, the it would be a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because we end with the rebellion of the Noldor, and you would think you know that we would go, you know, people would probably be expecting to begin right with the Noldor, right? Um, you know, to pick that up and see about them leaving. If we think about the... Let's think for a second about um, uh, the structure of the episode. Uh, not necessarily the order we want to do it in, but, like, what stuff do we need to cover in this episode? Like, what segments need to happen in this episode? Um, just brainstorming, I'm thinking we're going to need some, we definitely, we're, we're going to need something from the Aqualande perspective so that we even just for the purpose of reminding people who the heck Olway and like Arwen are, right? Um, so, uh, um, we're going to need that. We're going to need, uh, receiving news of, um, of the events, um, Tyrion and sort of the the well, obviously maybe just their reaction to the darkening to start with, and then some rumors Ooh. about goings on with the uh, with the Noldor. But I mean, I, I, like the darkening, like obviously they have to react to that, right? Yes, yes, and that's a really sort of poignant line in the Silmarillion, right? Because remember the the the, the Teleri aren't there at the festival, um, you know, they're not standing around the corpses of the trees like everybody else. They're still off on the coast. But just that, the the description of the sound of, like, the grief and sorrow and surprise of the Teleri as they're suddenly plunged into darkness, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, it would be interesting. I'm almost tempted. It would be kind of out there. But I'm almost tempted to do the entire thing. We could do most of this episode from the Teleri point of view. That'd be kind of interesting. Start with the darkening, as you say, Dave, and their reactions to the darkening. And then they hear and see rumors that the Noldor are marching, that the Noldor are leaving Tyrion. Um, and, and then the, and then, you know, they, they come down. That would be really interesting. Um, this whole this whole episode could almost be like a horror like a horror film, in the sense that it begins with the darkening, 
they're reacting, they're scared, trying to figure out what's going on. They start hearing rumors that the Noldor are marching, and maybe the Noldor just like it, it kind of the last the last set piece is the Noldor just come out of nowhere and uh, start stealing their ships and killing them. <laughs> well, we do need we do <laughs> we, that would be dramatic, but we, we do need conversation, right? I mean, Fanor is gonna come and ask for their for their help, right? Um, and then accuse them of, right? You know, being Maybe, um, traitors what if, and when they what won't. If, what if they think? Um, what if they think that the Noldor are are emissaries from the Valar, like, right? With the, to explain what's going on with the darkness. You know what I mean, so they hear the, the, the they hear the Noldor are moving, but maybe they think, oh, they're they're coming to help us, our friends. Well, and think about this too. Notice the parallel here. I mean, which of course this this parallel is explicit, kind of from the other direction. But the parallel is explicit uh, at the the War of Wrath, right? Uh, when the elves of Valinor are going to be mobilized and go to Middle-earth in order to fight a war against Morgoth to defeat him, um, and they need the ships of the Teleri in order to bring them over. Like, that's what's going to happen at the end of the First Age, right? That's what happens in the War of Wrath. That's exactly, apparently, the situation here. The only difference is that they don't, they, the Noldor, do not, in fact, have the sanction of the Valar, and when the, and the Teleri are going to refuse. Um, and, uh, uh, but, um, but we do see, we do see that parallel, right? Um, so having them, uh, again, it's, I, I say it kind of works the other way around because, the significance of that moment at the time of the War of Wrath, the 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 Teleri agreeing to ferry like the Vanyar over uh, to uh, fight in Middle Earth at the War of Wrath after Arendel comes, um, the significance of that is really seen best from the perspective of remembering the kinslaying, right? Um, and so it's it's in retrospect that that uh, that that parallel really has its weight. So it's not like when this comes, we can expect people to be thinking forward to the War of Wrath, but we can be setting that up, right? Um, and it, it, it just strikes me as a really interesting opportunity to make that moment later on even more powerful, right? Because I think it's something that is actually easy to overlook, um, and I think that sometimes people do overlook it. Um, in, uh, uh, in the published Silmarillion, the significance of the fact that the Teleri um, allow it, you know, that the Teleri agree to give their ships to, you know, to, to let the Vanyar use their ships to, uh, to, to ferry them over. Um, it's a big deal that they, given what happened in the Kinslang, it's a really big deal. I mean, again, there's the, there's the, you know, there's the, 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 the permission of the, you know, the blessing of the Valar on the expedition, uh, as was not the case in the first. So it's not like it's exactly the same situation. Um, but, uh, but it's a pretty significant moment for them to, 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 to say, we're going to be okay with this. Um, and I think that we can really set that up. Um, Yeah. Um, exactly. Mario says, but they're still going to help those bastards who killed their relations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, they're going to go and, and rescue the Noldor. Right? I mean, that's why it's such a big deal. It's not just that the situation is parallel, but 
no, ferry this this army across to Middle Earth in your precious ships in order to rescue the Noldor, uh, who who um, who were guilty of the kinslaying the first time. So yeah, um, it's it's that's that that's a really big deal. So I do um um I do like the uh, uh, thinking about that parallel um, and. This all comes back, Trish, very indirectly to saying I agree with you. Um, it makes it even more powerful if they th- are under the impression, initially, that the, the Noldor are doing this with the Valar's blessing, right? Um, you know, maybe that can be the turning point, really, um, with Olway and... Because also... Think about this from another point of view as well. What's always job, right? What's always calling? Didn't we imply that always calling is to basically be the Kyrdin from the Valinor side? So, like, in theory, letting people borrow ships to go back to Middle-earth is kind of his point, right? Kind of his purpose. That's like the calling that he had. So for him to be like, I ain't taking no people and no ships from the get-go is weird, would be weird, right? It would be inconsistent with what we've seen. Um, so when when Fanor at the head of like the like 90% of the Noldor come down to the harbor and say, we need a ride to Middle-earth because we're going to attack, because, you know, darkening and everything, and we're going to go attack, uh, we're going to go take vengeance against Morgoth. Always first reaction has to be a kind of reserved, okay, right? Well, that's kind of my job, right? Uh, I'm behind this kind of thing in principle. Uh, You know, I had this vision from Olmo and stuff. And then the thing that has to, would have to change his mind, the, the thing that he would have to get, would have to make him resistant, would be the recognition, the acknowledgement, the realization, that's the better word, the realization of the fact that uh, the Noldor, this is, they're not, in fact, going on behalf of the Valar. The Valar, in fact, disapprove of this. But that idea, I think should be so alien to Olway. Like, he wouldn't be suspicious of that. Like, when the Noldor show up, his first reaction isn't going to be like, oh man, you're, you're probably like declaring, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a rebellion against the Valar themselves here, aren't you? Like, that's probably going to be pretty far from his thought. Although, so obviously he would know about Feanor's banishment. So the fact that Feanor's break, breaking his banishment would be a bad sign that he would notice from the beginning, surely, right? Uh, even before Fanor opened his mouth. Um, so, uh, uh, so definitely thinking about um, thinking about how to handle. As you can see, I'm trying to think through always reactions here, right? I'm trying to think through how uh, you know what always going to be thinking, uh, and how he's um, how he's going to be responding. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like dismay and shock and fear at the darkening, and then some form of 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 hope at the coming of the Noldor. Like, oh, okay, they can tell us what's going on, and they they're here to help us. Yeah. And then, and then uh, a suspicion and growing sense of dread when the um, you know when the like 
you know, they kind of see the Melrose coming in the distance, and then when the first one that sort of steps into, I, I have no like candlelight, right, or whatever it is, using to local Ooh, lighting sorry. that they have, when the first one that steps in is Feanor, and there's sort of a, you know, well, why would they send you as their, as their envoy? Right, right, and exactly. That, you know, and that's when it dawns on him that all's, that this isn't what he thought it was. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now we have some, uh, some good questions. Uh, um, Nick was asking, are we going to be introducing a bunch of characters for Olway to talk to? Um, we will need some Olway inter, uh, interlocutors. I don't think we need to invent a whole bunch of new characters. Um, we already have one Im- particularly important character, other elf, that, that is, for him to talk to, and that's his daughter, right? His daughter, Finarfin's wife. Um, should she be with them, or should she, who? Where should Erwin be? His daughter. Should she be coming with Finarfin in the back of the host and get there? Should she be arriving just as like at the kinslaying is already happening and she runs onto the scene, um, and her dad's already dead or like dying, or should she be there with her dad? So that she, he can have her to talk to at the beginning, or what do you guys think about that? We did now. Marie points out that we also did uh, um, meet. Uh, Olway does have sons uh, who are don't really come in uh, to the Silmarillion story, but we did meet them. We did have one scene in season two um, when Galadriel and her brothers were visiting Alqualonde, and so we did like introduce you know we had extras playing always sons basically uh in that one episode so we have we do have like faces that would be have been seen before i'm a little bit i'm a little bit nervous about trying to sort of raise the profile of any character that we're not going to use again after this um except in the sense of playing the long game, I mean, down the road, again, thinking of that other major Teleri and Valinor scene, that is the, the agreement to set sail and take the Vanyar across to Middle-earth for the War of Wrath, um, we are going to need always dead. If always dead, we're going to need somebody else to be making that call, right? We're going to need somebody else to be the focal point of that really important, you know, forgiveness decision, Right. So we could set up one of the sons uh, as the person who's going to take over after Olway dies, and therefore, you know, the person who will be, um, you know, letting go of the grievance down the road. Um, yeah, yeah. That's pretty necessary. Yeah. Um, you gotta pick at least one. Yeah. Now, uh, Nick makes a really good point here. Nick says, uh, focusing on the Teleri, that is if we have the focal point of the episode be like on the, on the Teleri point of view, it asks us to care about the tragedy in a different way. Um, and the fact that we haven't invested in almost any of those characters makes that even harder. Um, and I agree. I agree that it, that definitely is a challenge. Um, if we do, if we were instead to do, 
as would be kind of more normal, this episode uh, chiefly from the Noldor point of view. Um, Nick, I really like how you said that, to care about the tragedy in in a different way, right? Um, Do we want the... Because it seems to me that really for the sake of the story we've been telling and the sake especially of the story that we're going to tell, there are two elements of the tragedy, right? One element of the tragedy is, oh my goodness, like, the to focus on the people who are dying, right? There's the tragedy of, of the people who are being killed in the kinslaying. And that's a really important one, obviously. But not just for the sake of the Teleri, because that itself... It's a huge part of the story. <laughs> that seems really dumb to say, right? Like, the people who are killed in the massacre are a really important element in the story. Like, yes, thank you for that. But no, <laughs> what I mean is um, the fact that they're dying. I mean, this is a, this is, this is a, like, Garden of Eden situation, right? This is a Cain and Abel situation. This is literally parallel to Cain and Abel. It's the first murder ever. Right. I mean, you could say Finway was the first murder, but it's the first murder not by the bad guy ever. No one has ever like been guilty of violence against somebody else. Remember, Fanor just drawing his sword and not using it uh, against Fingolfin was a huge big deal that got him banished. Right, because it was a breach of the peace. And we talked about that last time, trying to uh, last season. I mean, trying to focus on how big of a deal that was, trying to kind of bring home the fact of uh, to people of what a big deal that is, to imagine, like, project, try imaginatively to project yourself into a world that is completely without strife, you know, that is completely without, where violence and, 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 and murder are literally unprecedented, where nobody even understands that concept, right? I mean, it's just not on the table. So the drawing of the sword against somebody is such a shocking concept that one person would treat another person that way. It's never happened before in Valinor. And so, again, like the way that this is a permanent loss of innocence for everyone, right? Um, so that's, that's a, it's a major part of the story, obviously. But it isn't the only part of the story. And in a sense... It's not even the primary part of the story, since the story is going to be following the Noldor. Um, it's focused on the Noldor leading up to this point, and certainly going to be focused on the Noldor after this point. Um, the chief, the other element of the tragedy, so the one element of the tragedy is the tragedy of the people who have died, and the whole, you know, the whole peace that has been broken and innocence that has been lost uh, as sort of an extension of that. But at the same time, there's the tragedy of the kinslayers, right? The tra- of what this means for these people, for the Noldor to have done this, to have crossed this line. Um, it's the and and we see this. This is emphasized very strongly in the text, right? Um, we see Manway, right after the kinslaying. We see Manway mourning for Feanor, right? Mourning for the marring of Feanor. Um, it is. It's not that Manway doesn't care about the Teleri that have been killed, but Manway in the text is very sensitive to the fact that, like, what has happened to Feanor is tragic, and we need, and that's the other element that we really need to emphasize. Um, again, both the tragedy of like, oh my goodness, the victims, but in a sense, that's an easier tragedy to get across, 
right? Um, the harder thing and long term for like the next, you know, five seasons or whatever, the even more important element is the tragedy of the of the aggressors, right? The tragedy of their fall. Um, and that's much harder. That's much harder. Much harder to get across because, of course, like when you see a tragedy like that, you know, when you see a when you see an atrocity like that, um, it's easy to sympathize with the victims, right? And it's hard not to just demonize the people doing the massacring, right? Um, but we have to be really careful there to make sure that we don't have the Noldor simply, uh, simply becoming, um, uh, simply becoming, uh, uh, monsters, right. Or, or allowing our viewers to simply look at them as monsters. Um, now, I agree, Marielle, that we don't need to um, spell that out right away. You know, we do need to, uh, uh, you know, that uh, we do have years to unravel the consequences and the grief of the Noldor, absolutely. But but I do think it's crucial that we strike the right note with our viewers right away. Um, because if what we have is our viewers hating the Noldor, right? Seeing the Noldor as like, the Noldor are now villains, right? Um, and then... If they lose all sympathy for the Noldor, we're kind of in trouble, actually. Um, and I don't think a process of, I think that the Noldor are terrible, but like over time I can slowly come to sympathize with them and forgive them. I don't think that's enough. I don't think that's good enough. Um, we need it to be. We need it to be clearer, uh, clearer than that, more powerful than that from the very beginning. Um, Yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Mike uh, Hochstad says, uh, the tragedy of the Noldor doesn't end until Galadriel refuses the ring. It lingers that long. Like, that's the final chapter of uh, of the tragedy of the Noldor uh, and, you know, sort of meeting redress. That's a really interesting way to think about it, Mike, and I think you can you can certainly make that argument. Um, it, that's the that's the very end of the of the consequences here. <clears throat> On which subject we'll get back to Goadriel, uh, as she is certainly a very important person to be thinking about here for that exactly that reason. Um, and we'll later discuss her refusal of the ring in about twenty years. Exactly, we'll get there, and when we do, it will be so poignant uh, for that reason. <clears throat> you'll remember, somebody, you'll remember somebody was will have forgotten it. Right. Yeah. You'll well, see these earlier conversations. Well, here's my uh, here's my consolation. There, my consolation is that the majority of people who would ever see our show are obviously going to be binge watching it on Netflix, so it's not going to actually be oh, yeah, <clears throat> as good. big an issue, right? So, yeah, that's true. Because we really shouldn't be thinking about this as a, a show that people are going to be waiting for week to week. I mean, who does that, yeah. right? I mean, you know. So, yeah, that's that is so that is so uh, that is so twentieth century. That's right. <clears throat> um, but, uh, okay, yeah. Um, 
all of this is in response, Nick, to your observation earlier on that we're running the we we uh, well you didn't say it this way, Nick, but um, in focusing on the Tillery point of view, we run a real risk of of recruiting the sympathies of our viewers in a particular way there, right? Um, and the more I think about that, the more I'm beginning to think that that might not be a good idea for that reason. Because if the whole thing is from the Tillery point of view, it's going to be, we're, I mean, it lays the emphasis very squarely on the Tillery perspective there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Phil Boswell had made a point, which I want to come back to for a second, because this is a lingering issue, right? Um, and it's something I think we do need to think about. Uh, Phil Boswell says, to be fair, you know, the people killed in the kinslaying are going to turn up in the halls of Mandos to be tended, you know, by Namo and his crew. Uh, so, like, the fact that they were killed doesn't mean the same thing to elves as it does to humans. That's true, and I think really important. Um, and it's one of the things... Um, it's one of the things that is easy to lose sight of. It's, it's an issue we've talked about before, right? How do we... We need to be careful to, at least to some extent, try to represent the elvish perspective and not merely do the whole thing as if everybody's thinking about things from a mortal human perspective. And one of the things that is clearly different um, is reaction to death and to separation. Right? Um, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, consider two parents. Consider Nerdanel, wife of Feanor, and... Elrond, right? Consider Nerdanel's decision to remain behind in Valinor while her husband and sons go off, all seven of her sons, right? So her decision to estrange herself from her entire family as they go off to Middle-earth to fight Morgoth. And on the other hand, consider the parting of Elrond uh, and Arwen at the end of The Lord of the Rings, right? Um... If we look at Nerdinel from a, her choice from a purely mortal perspective, right? Um, if we look at at her from a purely mortal perspective, it's a it makes it I don't know either a little hard to sympathize with her or easy to sympathize with her in the wrong way, right? She is being separated from her entire family but not permanently, right? A, a mortal mother, in Nerdanel's point of view, would have the perspective, like, I have lost my whole family, right? I have been separated from them forever. I will never see them again. Um, I am like a, a widow. A ch you know, I, I am now, I've, I've gone from wife and mother of seven to childless widow in a day. Right? That's how a mortal woman would feel, and that would be the significance of the mortal woman's choice 
in that case. But that's not Nerda now. Um, she's going to be separated from her husband. Well, her husband for quite a long time, but that's a slightly different story. Uh, she's going to be separated from her kids for a while. You know, a couple millennia or something. But, like, what's that to an elf, right? So, like, her boys will come back sooner or later. One way or another, sooner or later, her boys will come back, right? It's not a... Whereas, again, when Elrond parts from Arwen, it's forever. Forever in an almost unprecedented way, right? He is having a parting with Arwen, which almost no... Only one parent has ever had. Ever in the history of Middle-earth, so far as we know. Million being that one parent, right? Because even Thingol doesn't ever seem to grok it, right? But Million does. Uh, so, um, so that's a, so again, like, that's a huge deal. Nerdanelle's parting with her boys, less of a big deal. Again, not insignificant, not like she doesn't care, but it's, it, the stakes aren't the same. And, and so it changes, it changes the whole calculus of the situation. Um, and as Marie was pointing out, the fact is, uh, when we were just talking about we need somebody to be able to be there to make the call uh, at the War of Wrath when it's time to for the second armed host to come down to Alquilande and say we need to be ferried to Middle-earth so we can fight a war of you know vengeance against Morgoth, and they're going to... somebody to say yes, Right. And to engage in that act of forgiveness, as Marie was pointing out, that could be Olway. Olway could be back by then. No real reason why he shouldn't be, actually. Right? It's been quite some time. He would have had a, a, a long time in Mandos already. So Olway could have returned from the dead already by then. No need to make up a new character. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that literally didn't even occur to me when we were talking about that earlier on. Because, again, it's so easy to get into that uh, death doesn't mean the same thing for elves. Um, and, and they as yet don't have that much experience of it, right? But it's hard. So, so this is... Uh, what I'm saying is to what extent should we... To what extent and in what ways should we try to engage with this concept... Um, because goodness knows it seems counterproductive during this tragedy of the kinslaying to be trying to convey like, so the Noldor are killing everybody, but don't worry, it's not that big a deal. They'll be back pretty soon. And like, you know, no harm, no foul, right? Like we can't be conveying a no harm, no foul policy with the kinslaying, right? And yet uh, it doesn't mean that uh, death doesn't mean the same thing to elves as it does, to, you know, to just treat them all like bereaved mortals who have been, you know, for all they know, permanently separated, uh, you know, for, you know, the, like the grief of loss is not the same for elves as it is for mortals. Um, to the extent that the elves have a hard time understanding that mortal perspective, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, interestingly, um, so 
I'll just read these three comments in a row because these are actually really great comments. Murray says, death might be less permanent, but murder is still pretty rude and evil. Totally agree, Marie. And we can't, we can't, that, that, that's the risk, right? We can't undermine that. We certainly can't be conveying like, so, you know, whatever, like killing people is just kind of a misdemeanor, actually, from an elvish perspective, because it's like not permanent. Um, uh, uh, so I, I totally agree. And Phil Boswell says, death doesn't mean the same thing, but dying has to at least be painful, right? Exactly. After which Tony had said, uh, um, the Elvish view on the death on death, therefore should focus on the pain and suffering um, that they undergo in the process, both the pain and suffering of the one killed uh, and the pain and suffering of the, you know, loved ones of the person who was killed. Um, yeah. <laughs> Karita is, uh, reserving the right to quote Marie on, uh, that, uh, principle that murder is rude. Um, I, 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 I agree. Murder is extremely bad manners. Uh, that is, that is certainly true. Um, and yes, as Mike points out, the big problem is that we've never really shown this death and rebirth thing before. Um, we've only had two elves die mostly die, right? We've had the Muriel issue and we've had Finway's murder, Finway's murder quite recently, right? Um, so you're absolutely right, Mike. There, there are two problems. One manageable problem, well, both manageable problems. One easier problem and one harder problem, right? The easier problem is that the viewers aren't familiar with this. That's easy enough to handle because all we need is, as Nick was suggesting, a conversation with the Valar and the Valar explaining it, right? Um, so we can we can address it in exposition and cue the read, the viewers in to the issue there. The harder thing to manage is that the elves themselves don't understand that yet because they don't have, uh, I mean, they've never experienced, no one has ever returned to Valinor. No one has ever returned back out of Mandos before. Um, so, um, yeah. Oh, wait. What? We did... We did do that. Did we? Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. See, all right. Marie and Nick are both reminding me of this. You guys totally did that one on your own. We didn't talk about that, did we? This was totally a, a, a script outline concept, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we totally... I think you guys totally went rogue on that one, which is cool. Okay, so Ingwe's wife... How did, I don't even remember this. How did how did Ingwe's wife die? Somebody clue me in on this. Oh, I'm sure I did okay. It. I'm not saying I'm not saying that I didn't approve it. Uh, I'm just saying I'm. I don't remember thinking of it. I'm pretty sure we didn't talk about it in the in our session. Oh, the hunter in Middle Earth. Classic, right. Classic producer behavior, right there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Having the Dark Hunter kill her—that was my idea. Okay, that I, that I, I can remember saying I wanted the Dark Hunter to kill somebody significant, uh, and I have a vague memory of our suggesting Ingwe's wife. It's her return that I didn't remember. Okay, right. He's grieving her loss during the visit of the ambassadors. Okay, all right, all right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. All right. Fine. Good. Well then. If we've done that, then that's great. 
because, of course, one possible solution to the problem I was just describing is to do it earlier, right? So that we have that. If we have a precedent for that, if we've established that elves return from Mandos, then okay. Then it's not alien totally, and we do have, so we have more corpses than I thought. Right. Okay. Okay. Look at that. Very good. See, look, you guys are thinking ahead and I'm, uh, and I'm forgetting. So that's great. Okay, then. How does it impact? So let's just think about the kinslaying for a second. How does this, how does this impact the kinslaying? What does, if you are one of the Teleri, forget the ships for a second and focus on the people. You are one of the Teleri holding the bloody corpse of a family member in your arms, right? What is going through your head? Like, what does that mean to them, exactly? And I know it might seem like a silly question, but you see why I'm asking that question, right? Like, it might seem like a dumb question, but but I think it's because again, it's from the moral perspective, it means one thing, right? Oh, and it means many things, but one of the like the chief thing is bereavement, loss, right? The whole idea of bereavement has to mean something different to elves. Right? And it's interesting to think that through. Not even thinking yet about how we handle it on screen, right? Not even thinking about how we actually depict it. Just thinking about, just trying to process the kinslaying from an elvish point of view for a second. Um, No, there's got to be loss, but the loss is going to be different than what we think of as loss, right? I mean, loss of immediate companionship, say, or... Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, and I agree, Marie, there's plenty to grieve still, even if you believe the person will eventually return. But the, yeah. but the grief sure. would be of a different kind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would have a different quality. And that's what I'm trying to capture, right? Again, I'm, again, I please, I, I know it, it might be, possible or, or, or even easy to misinterpret my comments on this subject as like really heartless or or me suggesting that it's like not a big deal. Not at all. Yeah. It's just a different kind of deal. And I'm trying You're to... You're not saying they're going to just shrug their shoulders and right. go, oh, well, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Just kind of step over the body of their you know, children and, <laughs> and, and be like, you know... Uh, See you later. Yeah. See you later, alligator. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Mary, Marielle has a really interesting way of saying this. She says uh, she would think that a mortal might focus on the slaying part, but the immortal would focus on the kin part <laughs> of, the, of the word. That's, a, that's an interesting way to think about it, Marielle. Um, there is still separation. Because, of course, it is unknown how much time they're going to be away, right? Um, So there is still loss, loss of time, loss of community, um, and and it's indefinite. It's unknown, right? So you might be without this person for a really long—you will still miss them. Even if you know, even if you know for sure 
that they're going to be back. Um, and even if your lifespan is so long that the passage of several millennia isn't, doesn't feel the same to you as it might feel to a mortal, it's still a very significant disruption. There's also empathy. I mean, going back to what, um, uh, going back to what you, uh, guys were emphasizing before, you know, Phil and Tony, um, about the suffering of like empathy for the, the horrible pain and suffering of the person who was slain. Right. Um, you don't want them to go through that. And, and another thing, you don't know what's going to happen to them in Mandos. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Mike Huckstad was saying, um, like he, he, you know, from the human point of view, bereavement means it is sad for me that this parting has happened for the elf. It means I'm sad for you that this agony befell you. And that's mm-hmm. a, an actually a really interesting shift, Mike, that the elves would be thinking more. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's not, of course, it's not that uh, the a, a human mourner isn't thinking about the other person as well, but I agree with you. In, in a sense, the, uh, the hardest thing to bear is the absence of the person in your life for the rest of your life, right? Um, in fact, one of the things that people will say to comfort the bereaved, right? For mortals are things like, well, she is at peace now, right? Like her suffering is over. Um, but again, that's not, and that kind of shows like, that's not the focus, right? The focus is it's, it's on the bereaved um, and the bereaved dealing with the situation the that idea of the elves are thinking not of themselves at all, but just focusing on the other because, of course, the other is the other is still there. Um, yeah, yeah. And two people, Phil and Marie, are thinking about another issue here. Um, when they come back, they're not necessarily exactly the same. And we're not talking pet cemetery here, right? But uh, but they're changed. Um, Marie, as is her wont, points, uh, points to a quotation in the text that bears out that idea. Um, sorry, I'm pausing and making the face that I make when I'm about to say something and I'm thinking through to make sure it's true before I say it. I think that the only... reincarnated elf we ever meet. And I think we only ever meet one elf after he's already died once and come back. Is that right? Are there any other elves that we meet? I think so, yeah. Gorfindel, right? Um, Gorfindel, right. Yeah. Uh, Gorfindel is the only only post-death elf that we ever actually meet in Tolkien's narratives. Now let's look and let's look in the questions and see where the listeners said we're wrong. Right. Uh, <laughs> Which actually, yeah. 
Anyone? Can anyone think of anyone? Right, right. right. No Nick is right that Finrod is mentioned that he, but but we never meet him. We like we, we never get to like see how he is afterwards, right? Um, uh, yeah, both Mike and Nick what were remembering is that. He mentioned. I don't even remember this. Uh, it just it's mentioned that like it was long before he walked with his father in the in the fields of Valinor, like allusion to the fact that someday he will come back, but um, back. but right. there's no. Well, that there's could no be- that yeah. could be anticipatory. That could be like right. post after the world is remade. Well, yeah, exactly. We don't a, really know. Yeah. I have a question. How? I mean, in this context of Glorfindel being the only one we actually see, how unusual do we want to make this in the film film? In film film, I, I'm think I'm thinking pretty unusual. Pretty unusual. For, well, yeah. Though, though, here's our problem. Um, unlike Tolkien's narrative, <clears throat> which like shifts away from Valinor and almost never returns again until it returns with Arendel, if we don't do that, uh, we're, like, we're showing that. more behind. Yeah. We, we will end up showing more behind the scenes stuff, right? right? As for instance, we were talking about with uh, the War of Wrath, right? Um, you know, with the War of Wrath, uh, we just you know it's just kind of it's kind of passed over in a few sentences. The concept is passed over in a few, is given to us in a few sentences and it's not personalized. Like there's no individual characters that are named in the doing of it. It's just like the Teleri corporately are confronted with this choice and they make this decision. Um, because again, it's very, it's, it's, you know, the Silmarillion is in full, like big picture, historic, historical chronicle tone at that point. Right. Uh, but we're not, playing that way <laughs> in some yeah. film. Well, so, I mean, could it be that we... It's not unusual for them to come back to Valinor, but super unusual for them to come back to Middle-earth. Yeah, yeah. That, I think, can still pretty much just be Glorfindel. I mean, it's hard to see many other yeah. candidates for that. Um, but, yeah. but, there are, but there are two things there. First, um, you know, when we meet Glorfindel... Like, when Tolkien wrote the character of, you know, the part of Glorfindel... Was he thinking of of Gorfindel as a post death elf? And my answer to that is a firm no, firm no. Right. Um, that's a retcon thing. Um, mm-hmm. I am ninety eight percent convinced that the character of Glorfindel in the Fellowship of the Ring, and we've just been doing this. We've just been in the in the Mythgard Academy. We've been doing the Return of the Shadow, and we're in the middle of the trees of Isengard Rings. So we've just been looking, going through the manuscript development of the Lord of the Rings, where Glorfindel's character comes in and the role that he's given in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, or rather, of course, in that thing that will eventually become the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, I'm, I am, I'm almost 100% convinced that Tolkien was... It's one of the last examples of Tolkien recycling him, taking a character from the Silmarillion stuff and recycling him for the Lord of the Rings. Like the Elven King of the Hobbit is Thingol recycled. Uh, like the Arkenstone is a Silmaril recycled. Glorfindel is recycled and he's using the name and kind of concept of Glorfindel. Um, but was there an identity when he invented the character of Glorfindel? Was he thinking this is that, that very same elf of Gondolin who died uh, fighting the Balrog in the past? I am 98% convinced that no, that was not what was in Tolkien's mind when he wrote that. The evidence is very strongly against that uh, at the point at which that was introduced in the manuscript. Then he decides later on in retrospect, after he has fully integrated the Silmarillion with the Lord of the Rings world, like that's now all one consistent world. And as he's making it consistent, he decides 
logically, this must be. He wants it to be the same Gorfindel and decides that he must be post-death. So even the way that Gorfindel acts is not a clear indicator of how post-death elves are, right? We really only have, I think, two... Um, uh, we we only really have two data points for what a post for how a post death person might be changed. One is Gandalf, right? Which is not a great data point because he's not an elf, right? You know, this is a he's a he's a Maiar being resent back and given a new body. So it's 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 a resurrection, but it's different. He's not an elf, right? So, but but nevertheless, it's still a precedent for. When you return from death, you're not exactly the same, right? And so we could choose to say, you know, just because Gandalf is not an elf and doesn't automatically follow the same pattern doesn't mean that it doesn't follow the same pattern, right? It could still be a precedent for that. Um, and uh, the um, the other um, the other option, the other the one other data point we have, and this is the quotation that Marie made. Uh, way back when um, is Mithros. When Mithros is restored, when and when he's rescued from Thangarodrum and his arm is you know, his, 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 he's now one-handed and he lear- he's learning to fight uh, with his left hand, right, as deadly as his right had been. Um, and it's in Mithros's ferocity, when like nobody can stand against, you know, like no orcs can stand against Mithros in battle. Um it's it's a simile. It's almost like a throwaway simile that Tolkien uses, but it's a fascinating line where Tolkien describes Mithros as one who returns from the dead. Like, that's a simile that he's using to help us imagine what Mithros is like. And the purport of that simile would appear to be that he has been transformed, that he has been transfigured in some way. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yes, Robert, we have Baron and Luthien too, but they're also bad data points for a different reason, right? They come, like, Luthien returns from death, but she returns as a mortal, right? So, um, but, 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 Robert, I agree, we do have, we certainly have them as another precedent of returning from death changed, right? And not quite the same as they were before. So certainly if we want to build a case for the fact that, uh, it, you know, people are not the same when they return, elves are not the same when they return from death, I mean, it fits the general pattern, even though, as I say, from from a precedent standpoint, it's it's a bad data point as well, right? Because it's different. Um, so, yeah. Um, coming back then to the decision that we need to make. When in the cases which we will probably keep relatively rare, when we have, when we bring back character, elvish characters who have died, as we were talking about doing with Allway, do we want them to be changed? And if so, in what sense? Here's my here's the issue. I think that we do need to make them changed, but I think we have to make them improved. We can't make them. We can't. It's it's got like to me it seems like the opposite of the pet cemetery, frankly, right? Like they don't come back weird and lesser or worse or tormented or they're gonna like what Mandos does to them is good. It's not bad, right? Um, 
when they emerge from the halls of Mandos, they are wiser, stronger, better, not worse. Clearly, clearly, and just logically, what like the point of Mandos should be, right? Um, so exactly, Nick, they can't come back damaged. They can't. They can't. I mean, what are we saying about Mandos? What are we saying about the Valar? What are we saying about Iluvatar, if that's the case? Um, uh, exactly, Tony. Mandos is purgatory. Um, I mean, at several points in in the Silmarillion, in the history of the composition of the Silmarillion, uh, Mandos was literally purgatory. Like, that's where human souls went for purgatory as well, before they uh, went to wherever it is that they go. Um, so... Uh, so I, I mean, yes, and purgatory means they are they are purified there. The bad things are being purged away. Um. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think clearly they have to come out better. But now, what does this do to bereavement again? Right? Because if they've seen this, right? If we've brought back Ingwe's wife, then they have reason to know. A, they are ready, no, right? In theory, that elves don't leave Arda, that elves are bound to Arda. This is not going to be a mystery to them. This would have come up in their conversation with the Valar, presumably, right? Um, that even if their bodies are slain, they are coeval with Arda and never leave it. Right, so the question of permanent separation not even on the table, never in their concept of how the world works. So when they meet human beings and watch a human being die, the elves are like, "Whoa, what the heck! That's not how things work." Right, the whole that so it's it's got that's got to be completely alien, um, which means that's not on their radar screens when their family and friends are dying at Alqualande. It's so funny. In talking about the plan in thinking about the this episode and thinking about the Kinslaying episode, I didn't I was I didn't even think of this. Little did I suspect I'd spend most of the time talking about this conceptual <laughs> issue. But this is good. This is a big deal, right? Yeah, I mean this is gonna set how we're doing it the whole show really yeah and this is i mean this is really uh just like as a sidebar like this is why i love the film film project right because it's not about actually producing a film obviously but what it is about is like i never like thinking about depicting the kinslaying has compelled me here this morning to think about um like what it means to be an elf in tolkien's world in ways that I have never thought of before. I mean, I've just, I've never really thought this through before. Uh, and the way that, um, the way that this whole process, this whole, uh, this whole adaptation process really compels you, uh, to think, um, to think like this is really, is really fun. Um, so I don't regret it. I have no regrets and I want to keep thinking about this. Okay. Okay. Um, we're, we're doing an excellent job of plowing through the plot for this episode. Exactly. Well, see, fortunately, we have such capable uh, uh, script outline writers who do a great job of the plot. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to leave the plot details to them. You know, it's all good. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
such that even if we actually never get around to discussing it in this episode, it's in good hands. Oh, it's in good hands. Absolutely. Yeah. No problem. No problem. Uh, you guys are doing great. You don't need us. Um, yeah, our, 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 we have, uh, you know, these bigger, bigger picture questions to, to, to consider. Okay. So where are we on the question then? Uh, on the bereavement question, that is. They would... How secret do you think Mandos is? I mean, like, you know, okay, Mandos is not very talkative. Uh, but um, personally, I mean, Namo isn't very talkative. Let me, let me, I'm, I'm going to use Namo's name, personal name, because I want to, I want to specify when I'm talking about the person, the Valar, and when I'm talking about the place. Um, do you think that Namo and the other Valar would have a strict what happens in Mandos stays in Mandos policy, right? Ingwe's wife, does she hold like symposia about what it's really like in Mandos to prepare everybody, you know, like proactive counseling or does she not, can, can she not say it, right? Is it a secret? Is it a mystery? Um, is she not permitted or not able to reveal? Does she remember? Maybe that was she, the other thing I was going to say. Does she remember? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, By the way, just one small note. Mandos was on... Um, Daily Show last week being interviewed and I'm watching I'm like oh yeah we picked <laughs> that was a good selection perfect yeah he's getting a lot of play these days ever since we cast yeah. him as Mandos he's all over the place now <laughs> yeah we should, that was we really should. a big break it really, yeah. it really was it really was yes yes casting as Mandos uh, serves as actor's big break <laughs> yep uh, that's exactly what I've been thinking um uh, yeah. Um, it certainly can be. Nick is suggesting that it's very different for everybody. You know, like for each of the elves, like they have a like a, it's it's like uniquely personal. So it's not. I certainly would agree that Mandos wouldn't be like a mass production factory of purga- of purgation, right? Um, I also wonder if there's what kind of sense of time passing um, the elves within Mandos have. Um, Who, somebody was just a a purgator. Oh yeah, Tony. Um, Tony was just talking about um, the, like, you know, medieval uh, Catholic traditions of purgatory and what purgatorial sufferings are like. Um, I can't imagine that Elvish Mandos is like that. Um, yeah. Uh, that, I, that, that, that they're like tormented um, and punished or not punished, but something that which looks quite like punishment. It's not punishment. Um, like I think in Dante, it's really interesting, you know, when you see the pattern of sins and their consequences in hell and in purgatory, you can see there's a very, you know, the the torments that are being endured by the souls in purgatory are clearly um, constructive rather than destructive, right? The souls in hell are continually enduring 
are continually like subject to the consequences of their actions, like the negative consequences of their actions. Like they've, they've like through their sins, they have made their bed and Dante shows them lying on it for all eternity, basically. Whereas in purgatory, the punishments that are inflicted upon the souls of those in purgatory are designed to counteract and correct the sin that they had. Um, so it's that that that's still the point of it, but yeah, I don't see I don't see elves in purgatory being tortured. Um, uh, you know what I kind of see it? How I kind of see it? Leaf by Niggle is how I see it, right? Yeah. I, Mandos yeah. as like the workhouse in Niggle. I mean, the workhouse in Niggle is purgatory, right? That's Tolkien. We do have a very clear. Tolkien's vision of purgatory, right? Um, and you can see Niggle suffers, right? Like he experiences pain, but he's not tortured, right? Um, like there's nobody with red hot pinchers at him or anything like that. Um, but what we see him doing is learning the stuff he didn't learn, correcting the habits, the, the bad habits that he had, uh, uh, learning and developing the things that he failed to learn and develop during his life. Um, and so, you know, that's what I would think would have to be in some form and in some way. Um, but of course, that's the the other thing about the uh, medieval purgatory that uh, I always found awkward but now Mandos is, is the physicality. Right? I mean, that's not human purgatory. No, I'm I'm, I'm I, well. It was at one point. I mean, there's there's a, a fairly late development point where the souls of humans still yeah. go through Mando. Remember, like even in the published Silmarillion, like they have halls apart, right? So right, like right. there's a there's it a firewall of, between yeah. the human halls and the elf halls, but the humans still go there, right? So I'm I'm not I mean, even for, el- for elves. It's not a purgatory, right? Yeah, it's not it doesn't with that function. Well, yeah. no, it does. It is purgatory for the elves. Um, it's the halls of waiting, right? I mean, it's what it's called. So it's, but it's, well... But let, in the sense of it being like Leaf by Niggle, where he has to learn something, I mean, for his sins or whatever. I mean, I I never got the sense that Mandos was that way for elves. I think so, of, oh, though. now you will be I think so, though. Because that's why, really? that's why Fanor is in there so bloody long, right? Because he's not learning <laughs> his lesson, right? Because <laughs> Fanor is still off somewhere in the corner of the halls of Mandos with his arms crossed, like, refusing to, to, to listen and to change. <laughs> like, that's... So, yeah, no, I, I, I actually think that there is a purgatorial element. Um, and it's ex- it's explicitly the 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 Feanor issue, like the, how long it would, the, the, the reference to how long it would be before Feanor, you know, emerges from Mandos is what seems to me to say there's clearly, if it's not purgatorial, it's retributive. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and, 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 and of the two purgatorial seems to me much more, Accurate, much more natural. Yeah, right? I, I can. I, I'm, I'm much more ready to believe that it's purgatorial than that it's merely retributive. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony Mead is imagining fan or uh, writing lines at the blackboard like Bart Simpson. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony, what would fan or be writing on the blackboard? My vote would be for. It's not all about me. It's not all about me. It's not all about... I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. Um, okay. Hmm. <laughs> I will not slay my kin. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And that was just only one of the things. Okay. But you see what the purgatorial thing is doing, right? If we conceive of it as... uh, I kind of suspect that those of you who are bringing up the concept that when elves return from death, when they come back after... when When they are released from Mandos, they come back changed, were suggesting that as like a reason to be why there would be in some sense a permanent consequence of losing a loved one, right? So like, yes, like your wife has been killed. She'll come back someday. That's the bright side. But the downside is it's never going to be quite the same so that there is some sense of permanent loss. Except that's not it, right? It's not that way. Not if, in fact, when they return, they're going to return more whole and 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 more wise and more strong than they were when they left. Um, that puts an entirely new dynamic on the anticipation of death and the consequences of death and the perception of the consequences of death. Um, see what I mean? I mean, I'm not saying that people would look forward to it, but... It's another experience that they know will is in their future at some point. Something like that. Um, <laughs> Robert Brown asks, so, so when an especially clumsy elf who on multiple occasions uh, tumbles down and falls off cliffs, would they be particularly saintly, uh, having gone through numerous... <laughs> <laughs> numerous purgatorial experiences. Uh, yeah, well, of course, the, the the challenge is here. We don't want to make death sound like a desirable thing, right? Like, we wouldn't want to create a society which would tend towards, like, ritual suicide in order to attain a higher in level to, of enlightenment. In order to ascend. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's moving into dangerous waters, right. Uh, or somebody who kills their own family in order to, to, uh, uh, uh to bring them to a better place. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, we have to be very cautious to counterbalance that particular element. Right. Um, I don't think um, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure we should be looking at it as as like transformative in that way or as um, you know like uh, uh, you know like like it should be in the same way that, um, that 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 you know sort of certain experiences in life or certain forms of suffering can can impart wisdom and make people like wiser, more cautious, right. Um, more compassionate things like that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the kind of thing it shouldn't be like a you know sort of a well if you die you ascend to the next plane or something like that right um 
it, it should be sort of the more more it should be a more ambiguous experience you know the the same way that life transforms people such that no you know well i guess this even this isn't true but like most people don't willingly you know undertake um uh, traumatic experiences in right. the hopes that uh that right. it will make them wiser right but actually exactly. even that's not true people run marathons so <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, that's true. I mean, like, think about the bereavement itself, right? You know, I mean, the process of going through bereavement can, you know, in the end, many years later, make you into a stronger, wiser person, you know, suffer, just suffering in general, right? You know, suffering, experiencing tragedy can make you into a stronger, better person over time. But that doesn't mean, as you say, Dave, it doesn't mean people are signing up for it, right? Or or rushing to enlist in the, uh, please, I want to undergo horrible tragedy in my life uh, uh, thing. So, yes. Um, yeah, we can't. I mean, obviously, the easiest way to avoid this problem is just not to talk about it all that much. But I'm not really, again, I'm not, my focus here in this whole conversation hasn't even really been on our actual depiction on screen, but just thinking it through conceptually ourselves to understand it and then to be able to use that as a framework in which we can talk about the story. Death is still something to be dreaded. Um, yeah, I mean, Dave, I, I'm, I keep coming back to your point about, you know, wisdom and, su- you know, the relationship between wisdom and suffering and how gaining wisdom is an upgrade, but, um, not one that you would choose at the cost of the suffering that leads to the wisdom. But at the same... T- so what is the Elvis, Elvish relationship with death, then? I mean, because it seems that on the one hand, we can't have them seeking it. We can't have them eager for it. We can't have them thinking it's awesome and a great idea. Um, I was laughing before, Dave, when you were talking because Robert Brown uh, had just typed, um, Dad, my little brother was being annoying, so I sent him to Mandos for a spell. He'll be better after this, right? Like, yeah, it's exactly it's exactly the thing that we can't have, right? Yeah, that's um, what we're trying to avoid. Uh, so, again, so they can't look at it as a desirable good. Um, that would that would or as like a something that's kind of blasé, like, oh, well, you just needed some time out in Mandos. Right, exactly. Yeah, you, can't, you can't have people casually murdering other elves <laughs> right. to teach them a lesson. Right, exactly. To, to As like a self-improvement or, or a community improvement project. Um, but at the same time, we can't have them living in fear of it. You know, we can't have them dreading it and thinking it's a terrible evil. Um, because that's not right either. You know, I mean, that, that... So there needs to be a drive to stay alive, right? I mean, in other words, there's got to be a motivation for staying alive. <laughs> yeah. It just seems so weird. I, Because I, I, you're right. I mean, I, if it's not a big deal, you know, then dying isn't a big deal. Yes. 
And well, I wonder. Um, <sighs> well, I'm just kind of wondering if, like, like, um, you know, like, so, so, we're, you know, we 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 tend to discuss men in Tolkien as having a great deal of uncertainty about right. their fates. Yes. Elves, elves, not. Yes. But I wonder if maybe that's an oversimplification. Yes. I wonder if I wonder if the halls of Mandos should still be kind of mysterious and scary, you know? Because it is true, like that maybe they know something about it, and they. But I I I, I think the the not the unfear of death that elves have, mm-hmm. maybe while not requiring quite as large an act of a leap of faith as as men as required of men right. should require a certain amount like yes. like having a proper attitude toward death even as a an elf should should be a sign of like being being sort of um in sync with the valar and being kind of properly oriented towards towards the world and life and stuff like right. like death should still be kind of mysterious and scary um because they don't have that they don't actually have any data points right, right. the same way we don't have any data points um, they know some people have died and they've never seen them ever again, as far as we know. Right. Right. Yes. Um, and, and Mando sure isn't sharing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to be a mystery in that sense, right? Like clearly Namo and the other Valor are not going to be leading seminars on like what to expect when you're deceasing. Right. Right. You know, I mean, like that's, that's, <laughs> yes, you know, uh, death one Oh one. Right. Uh, uh, that's, um, yeah. Um, the afterlife and you, they're not going to be doing lectures like that. Um, and the elves who return, I like, I think the elves who return can't talk about it. Like they don't remember. They might have a sense of sort of what happened, but I, I, uh, I don't think that they, um, I don't think that they have, uh, like a memory that they could narrate about it exactly. Um, and the fact that many of them are gone for a really long time. Right. Um, so that's, um, yeah, yeah. Um, So there is an element of separation. But even more, but see again, even that, and that's true. You would be separated from your loved ones for a long time, even an, an indeterminate amount of time. But that's still, to be worried about that is still a mortal way of thinking, right? Um one of the things that we know about the difference between elvish experience and human experience is that the elves just don't count or even notice the passing of time in the same way, right? Remember Hurin and Huor's speech to Turgon. Remember even the fact, like the way that the Fellowship loses track of time in Lothlorien, right? Um, In a sense, that's like introduction to the elvish experience. Uh, You know, when... Sam Gamgee is like, I can remember like three or four days for sure. Right. But I, but I would, I would, we would never, I would never have said it was a whole month. Right. That's, that's kind of where elves live. Right. So the idea of like, Oh, but it's been so long. Like I'm looking at my watch every couple decades waiting for her to return. Like that's not, 
the way elves think exactly. It's not the way they, they don't seem to experience time quite like that. Um, so I, I agree that it's a factor, but it can't be the primary factor. Um, well, so, 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 but the, on that note, elves don't experience time like that. So wouldn't, so one could easily just as argue, just as easily argue that elves wouldn't be sitting there saying like, well, it's been two years since I saw my wife. Well, right. it's been a while. Right. But one could just as easily argue that, that for beings of that type, every, every instance would be like an eternity. Right. Right. So it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of like, you know, how long you've been parted from your loved ones in the sense that in the way that mortals would experience it, it would be the fact that they're gone at all. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Like it, it would be, it would be, it would be the, the fact that they're just not, they're just not here right. at all. Like that would be it. Right. That would be a tremendous loss. I would imagine. I mean, it has it has to be, you know. It has like, to be a loss, like, yeah. Maybe we don't have an explanation for why, but what we certainly do have is we certainly have data suggesting that it is definitely a loss. Yes. Um, because, because that's what Finway showed us. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Let me see if I can, I can explain. The, the way that I'm thinking about this now is kind of vague-ish uh, or abstract. Let me see if I can, if I can put this into words. Uh, well, no, I can put it into words. They're just clumsy. Uh, so what I want to say is that being like dying and going away, leaving the life that they have and that they're engaged in, that there's a kind of wrongness to that. Like it's not how it's supposed to be. Yes, they will return. And yes, when they return, they may be wiser and, but they may be upgraded. Right. Um, but, them leaving where they were and not like it's there is a sense in which that is a a failure to fulfill their destiny their calling like what what they're supposed to do um it's i was about to say it's not natural of course, it's perfectly natural. It's how they're designed, but it's like the contingency plan. They're they're supposed to be just there in this continual relationship with Arda and doing the work that they're doing. At the very least, death and time in Mandos is a disruption of that thing there that it is their purpose to be doing in the world, right? And it's a it is in a sense a disruption that isn't supposed to happen. If you understand what I mean by supposed to, right? Um, it's still not quite. I'm not sure that completely explains Finway's grief for Muriel. Yeah. Well, no, well, but actually, that kind of gets at what I'm looking at, right? That, like, Finway's grieving for Muriel in part because, like, this isn't how it was supposed to be, right? We were supposed to yeah. live together side by side and bear many children and, and be the, like, mother and father of the Noldor people together. And now you're not, right? Um, now I'm alone, doing this alone. And again, Muriel, another 
bad data point. <laughs> we have several bad data points <laughs> on the whole death and death and, and return from death thing. Um, uh, but because um, exactly, Nick. Yeah, she's 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 not coming back. So uh, that's a a, a a more permanent disruption than usual. Um, but uh, they um, also uh, yeah. On the bad data point question, uh, are we even supposed to? Are we even supposed to understand Finway's grief as uh, natural? Incorrect, or is his is his is his very grief in fact sort of a, a, a like a like inappropriate in some sense? Should he not be grieving for Muriel? Well, it's not like she was murdered, right? Exactly. Well, and I mean, of course, this also brings us to the question, the related question. You know, was his <clears throat> choice to marry Indus a mistake? Um. Because uh, again, I mean, to me, that's all tied up with that same question, right? That question of um, is uh, is his response to Muriel's pseudo death, semi death, uh, whatever. Um, <clears throat> it's not undeath, but I don't know what other prefix to it to it to it to to, to give to it. Um, is his response to Muriel's departure <clears throat> um, appropriate or or uh, you know? Is his response to Muriel's departure one of those things that he is going to be dealing with during his time in Mandos, for instance? Um, so, yeah. Uh, answer is, I don't know. And, of course, in the published Silmarillion, that exact point is raised, and the answer was, we don't know. <laughs> Right. Even the Valar can't decide whether it was good or bad for Finway to have gotten married a second time. Uh, okay. In the end, so when an elf dies... the sort of path that that elf and everybody connected with them was on has been disrupted. And that disruption is bad. Like it's that, that is an evil for that to have happened. It's, 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 it's wrong. That's not how it was supposed to go. And therefore there are consequences to that. Um, And it will affect other people's lives because they are not there as they should have been doing what they should have been doing. Um, And so therefore, death among elves is still an evil, and there are negative consequences of it, both to the one who died and to everyone else around them. There is still something is lost. It will never be... Things will never be the same again. Um... Because even when they return, their like path, their trajectory, it's gonna be different. Um, so it's still, for this reason, undesirable. Um, 
and for this reason, none of no one would seek it. Or rather, the only elves... You could say there is a sense in which there is a subset of elves who do seek death. And I'm referring to the elves who die of grief. Right? That's a thing that happens. Elves just dying of grief. But that would seem to me to be an elf who dies of grief. I can't help but think of that as an elf that has kind of lost his or her way. You know? Um, I mean, I'm not trying to be all judgy on the elves who die of grief, but, um, but that seems to me almost like an elvish suicide. That's like an elf, an elf who dies of grief is essentially opting out of their life, right? Opting out of their, their uh, yeah. Tony, that is an interesting way of thinking about it. And somebody had said something like this earlier before. Um, uh, Tony says, uh, it's almost like somebody being sent off to prison uh, suddenly and unexpectedly for an indeterminate sentence. And they come back and they're not quite the same as they were before, and they've lost a lot, right? They've lost the time that they were away. They are, you know, everyone else is going to be in a different place, and their relationship with everything is going to be different. Um, Now, Tony, of course, the way that it breaks down is that prison isn't purgatory, right? So they're not going to return just like wiser and better and stronger than they were when they went uh, to prison. Um, But... um, yeah, like we can't imagine the elves emerging from Mandos like with fun new tattoos or something like that. But, um, but that parallel does um, that parallel does work in some ways, especially with the way in which like when they return back to their loved ones again, they, it's not, they can't they they don't they can't just pick up where they left off, right? Um, their whole their life is different now. Their position is different now. Their purpose is different now. It's 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 changed. Um, ooh, Marie asks, do we want to see elves dying of grief at Aqualande? That's a great question. And I suspect uh, Marie's gentle suggestion that we return to Aqualande and the Kinslaying. Um, How about elves dying of despair? That's another one to my mind. That yeah. Be yeah. Off. They lose all their hopes. Right. Buddha approves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can tell. Buddha feels very strongly about this. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know that... I think it would look weird if they just, like, drop dead right away. You know? Like, if we show them grieving, like, you know, like grieving over the dead bodies of their relatives and they just kill over, right? That would look just odd, I think. Um, would it be more like Mariel? Like not the same, it was Muriel unique case? But but yeah, I, more. Yeah. I mean, it, it would it, it would take more time, and we wouldn't have time to show it. Um, right. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think the death of by despair and grief would take more time uh, of that. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Rickle, it should, it should, it should look more like, more like a death from lingering consumption than death by a heart attack. Um, and I guess it would be hard. I mean, that would, there'd be a real risk of that looking comic on screen. Right. Uh, and we wouldn't certainly want that. Okay. Well, I feel a little bit better about the whole elves and death thing. Do you guys feel better about this? This is just, this is such a fascinating question that I wasn't expecting to talk about, but way more important than plot details. Again, like I said, we have people for that. Uh, but, um, Margaret, I would think that elves would not commit suicide. Like, actually kill themselves with a weapon or, like, by throwing themselves off a cliff or something. I wouldn't think that elves would do that. That basically, like, an elf who is suicidal would die of grief or despair. Like, they would just, they would just fade away and die. That's, like, how they do it, essentially. Um, well, okay, Marie, right, yes, we do have Mytheros. Well, with Mytheros, it's different. Mytheros, bad data point with Mytheros. Um, because it's the Silmaril thing, right? He's, he's casting himself in with the Silmaril, right? Uh, yeah, Tony, no, Fingolfin doesn't commit suicide by Morgoth. That's a different thing, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, we're almost done. We're almost done. Okay. So guys, get this. Maria is saying that if we leave all the details to them, that we can't complain about what they come up with. Ha! That's not true. Oh, yes, we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be fair. No, no, no. No, no, that's not how it works at all. That's right. (laughs) Okay, all right. Okay. I'm feeling comfortable enough to move on. You guys feeling comfortable enough to move on? But that was a big deal. That was a big conceptual conceptual issue. Um, Let us return to point three of slide one. (laughs) Hakan's suggestion uh, that Uenin and Olwe have a conversation. I love this idea. I love most of Hakan's ideas and I really like this one. Um, I think it's really important for us to set up Uenin's wrath or Uenin's grief and the storm, right, that comes of it, that wrecks a bunch of the ships. Um, So um, uh, I think that and, and, and that's of course a great solution to the but wait we don't have enough developed minor characters right if the conversation is between Uenin and Olway chiefly then we don't need to worry about like always you know nameless and practically faceless children um so how does that conversation go what do they talk about is he going to be warned does Uenin cue him in Is she giving him a briefing? Whoa, sorry. Um, hmm. 
it has to set up her grief. It has to correspond, right? The conversation that she and Olway have has to correspond to. Uinen is a servant of Olmo. Olway's calling comes from Olmo. Uinen is a a bit of a wild, a bit of a loose cannon like Ase, so she doesn't have to be necessarily part of the company line with Olmo. But she can know about this, right? Um, if uh, if she. Um, if she the number one thing we need to accomplish in their conversation is to remind everybody of always calling and through that to set up not only the tragedy of the kinslaying but the irony of the kinslaying right because there's an intense irony in it if always calling if his purpose is to serve as the Kierden, is to serve to serve as Kierden on the on the on the on the western side, right? If he's the Valinorian version of Kierden, if his job is to build ships so as to enable elves to return to Middle Earth, so that the divide between Middle Earth and Valinor is not a permanent breach, is not a permanent separation. If that is the calling, and Olway and Kierden are both on either side of it. Um, sort of pursuing that calling differently, then the taking of the ships in order to return to Middle-earth, the seizing of the ships by force in order to do what is kind of always calling to do anyway is intensely ironic, right? Tragically ironic. That had Feanor, uh, you know, had the Noldor been doing this right, had they been working with Olway, had they been within the will, you know, sort of working with the Valar and the Teleri rather than against them, they could well have had Olway as an ally, right? If instead of rebelling and setting out on their own and doing what they're doing, they had, you know, been a little more cooperative on this, you know, had got like what happens with the Vanyar later on, right? They did this with the blessing of the Valar, if they, Noldor had sought the blessing of the Valar to return to Middle-earth um, and to be doing that in a spirit of love and cooperation with the Valar rather than in a spirit of rebellion, presumably, Olwe would have been first in line to help them because that was his job, right? That was his purpose. This is what he came here for. This is why he left Círdan behind. This is why he left his brother. Remember, he didn't want to leave Thingol behind. And, and the whole problem we were trying to solve in episode six of season two was, why does he go? Right? Why does he leave his brother behind? Um, what is it that draws him to Valinor at all? Um, like, why do any of the Teleri get there? Right? And the answer was because he had a purpose, and his purpose was, again, to be cured in from the other end, right? Um, this would have been right in his wheelhouse. This would have been a fulfillment, possibly the fulfillment, or at least one of the fulfillments of his purpose. And yet, 
it all goes horribly, horribly awry. So that seems to me should be the conversation or something like So how does Uenin breach this? Does she come to him and say, like, so uh, remember that purpose of yours? Like, just about time uh, to uh, think about implementing that plan, right? Or, uh, you know, does she say something more cryptic, you know, like the time is coming soon when, like, your purpose shall be put to the test or something like that? Or um, or does she not even know, but somehow it's got to come up? Um, I figure there's got to be cryptic. She's got to be cryptic somehow. Yeah, I mean, it, it can't be clear. She can't just come a warning like, Fanor and the Noldor are coming and they mean business and they're bad news. So, like, you right. know, brace yourself. Like, it, that, that can't, it can't be that. It can't be that. Um, Besides, this is not in the tradition. Yeah. It's just, it's just not. Yeah, yeah. Gods and goddesses and seers never do that stuff. Yes, yes. Maybe, maybe... Um, Maybe Olway himself is the darkening. Maybe Olway sees the darkening as a kind of portent, right? Maybe he has called to her and is asking her, what does this mean? Um, Is now the time? Maybe he's actually thinking, like, perhaps this means that the time is now come, right? Um that I should be doing this and she so he's the one who brings up his purpose and she tells him about the darkening like what happened she's giving him like the lowdown on the darkening right um what it was and what happened and cause see I I kind of like the idea it strikes me as more tragic and more ironic if, if there is a sense, even a very large sense, in which Olway is on board. Like, he is, when the Noldor come, he is predisposed to say yes. He would ferry them. He would bring them. But, the fact that they're obviously in rebellion against the Valar makes him really uncomfortable and unsure, unsure whether or not it's the right thing to do. Like, now that it comes to it, the way that it's coming... It, it's not right, and he doesn't know if this is the right thing to do. But then also, again, but, but the central thing has to be he is willing to use his ships to bring the Noldor over, but Feanor is not content with being ferried over. He wants to take the ships. He is asking for the gift of the ships. Like, give us the ships so that we can go over. And always like, no, I... I am willing to take, or I would in theory be willing to take you over if not for the fact that, you know, so, so he's kind of caught into with two things, right? On the one hand, he would be willing to take them over, except the fact that it seems like doing so would at least be aiding and abetting a rebellion against the Valar. And he's pretty sure that's not a good idea. Right. Uh, so like normally, yes, today this, no, like this isn't right. Let's think about this. Right. Um, and fan and again and and it's Fanor's insistence. It's Fanor's desire to dominate, like possessiveness, and desire to dominate. He wants to, he's he's not come to ask to get a ride. 
he has he's come to take the ships because that's what he's that's what he's thinking. Do you see what I mean? Um, uh, uh, Mariel is thinking that sounds weird for Feanor. Um, thinking that he would just be in a I need to get to Middle Earth mode and he would take any method to get there rather than saying that not all things belong to me mode. Um, Phil, but, you see, but Phil Boswell, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Phil Boswell says, you know, it's, it's worth emphasizing that Feanor is demanding their ships when he refused to hand over the Silmarils to restore the trees. That's exactly the other irony that I want to emphasize here, Phil. That's what I think is so important. Because to me, it's one of the things that is most... I think I've said this before, and of course, saying this now after our long conversation about Elvish death puts it into to a totally different context. But I've I've said before that the kin slaying, that is the actual slaying of kin, is a really big deal. But there's always been a sense to me in which the most purely evil thing that Fanor ever does is the burning of the ships not only because at least other things like the kinslaying is really bad, but at least that was a bad means to an end which he could believe was good, right? Um, there is no good, like, the burning of the ships is not a good means, is not a means to any end, right? I mean, there's no, it is, it is an act of both destruction of the ships and, uh, which is a big deal, and of the abandonment of Fingolf, and like there's no utility in either one of the, if like there's no purpose to it. It is an act of destruction. And even the the fact that he, Fanor, like who he is, right? That he, the greatest sub-creator, would not only take somebody else's Silmarils from them after this has happened to him, but then that he would destroy them, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 this is what, so Phil, coming back to what you're saying, absolutely, um, his seizing of the ships, we need to create that juxtaposition in the minds of the viewers between the position that he is putting Olway in, in saying to Olway, give me your ships, and always saying, didn't somebody just ask you to give up the Silmarils? Which means Uenin has to tell him that, doesn't doesn't she? Right? That needs to come out in the conversation with Uenin. Come to think of it. Right? Uh, both so that he so that Olway knows and so that we're reminded of it. Um, but um, um, anyway, yes. So we have to emphasize that because again, this this is to me, this is why that is yet another step in Feanor's fall, right? Um, the kinslaying seems to me to be two more steps down, like, like two more steps on the road to hell for Feanor, right? Um, you know, we talked about the point of no return, right? You know, that, that point of fall, that point of no return. We talked about that a lot in season two, especially as regards uh, Morgoth um, and the darkening of Valinor. Um, the kinslaying pretty, is that for Feanor, um, and 
but it's two steps. It's not one, right? The 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 seizing the ships. The I don't like. I have no empathy with you as a fellow sub creator. Um, I recognize that you feel as the ships the way that I felt about the Silmarils, and so having just experienced that grief, that bereavement of my uh, of you know of of my uh, uh, you know sub creation myself, I would never do that to you. The fact that he, you know, goes completely against that and then immediately also says, and I'm willing to kill you if you prevent me doing that. Um, yeah, I'm willing to, to permanently destroy the peace of Valinor and break the innocence of, of paradise uh, in order to pursue that that evil path. Like, that's like double whammy immediately. Um, but they're different. Both of those steps are different. They happen at the same time or in the same inc- same incident, but they're different steps. And I do want to make sure that we emphasize both of those things, that both of those things come out. Um, and that's why I'm thinking we emphasize that by the irony of always theoretical willingness to take people from Valinor to Middle-earth in his ships. It's it's made the the the... the, the the horrible act of Feanor is made even more poignant, more forceful, if we show that these the very ships that he's stealing were designed to ferry... They were made in order to ferry people to Middle-earth from Valinor, so that elves could return to Middle-earth if they wanted to. Um, so I like that. Um... Which is why, so I'm not suggesting that we necessarily have Olway coming up to Feanor and being like, hey, happy to take you, let's go, and have Feanor be like, no, I'm taking the ships all for myself, forget it. Um, I'm not saying that Olway, again, always not going to be eager, always not going to be unequivocal about his desire to take them. Um, I think that he should say, like, I support your return to Middle-earth. Like, you want to go back to Middle-earth? I'm, I'm, I am down with elves returning to Middle-earth as a general premise, right? But he would urge caution on him, right? He would counsel him not to go, which is, of course, exactly what the Teleri do in the book, right? They counsel the Noldor not to leave. Um, He would counsel him not to go, saying, um, you know, uh, you're rebelling against the Valar this is kind of a bad sign, right? Uh, Like, you're not in a good headspace right now, fan, or maybe you should count to ten million and take some time and think about this. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, Phil, I do think we need to have that conversation. We do need to have a, a confrontation and not just them walking in and taking the ships. Um, because, as Marie was reminding us earlier on, Feanor's first thought is to recruit the Teleri. He would like to bring them... He, he would like to come in... He's got the Noldor. He would like to come in and persuade the Teleri to come with them. So he want, he doesn't just want their ships, he wants them too. Um, and he changes his policy to saying, okay, never mind, I'll just take your ships, when they refuse to come. So that has to be the opening move. Um, he's like, I'm headed back to Middle-earth, always like, okay, in theory, I'm cool with that. Like, 
I'm the Middle Earth Ferryman dude. Like, that's great. That's why we built ships and stuff. And Feanor's like, okay, yeah, but I want you to come too. And always like, no, actually, we're going to stay here. We're good. And he's like, no, like, the Vow are keeping us enthralled and you guys are slaves here and, and like... We, we've we've had it with the Valar and we're leaving and you should have had it with the Valar too and you should come with us and always like dude hang on like no way man like uh, this is kind of we can't really we're not rebelling against the, the Valar and now that you've mentioned that we're totally not comfortable taking you because like we're not down with the whole rebel against the Noldor uh, the, the whole Valar thing at which point Fanor's like well then fine I, I'll, I'll take your ships myself if you won't come uh, and you know if you're like so ungrateful uh, and stupid that you won't come, uh, then fine, stay, but I'm taking your ships. That progression works, I think. Um, and fits, of course, I mean, that's, and fits the narrative of the book as well, but enables us to, to do all of this, like, foreshadowing and, like, juxtapositions forwards and backwards and, and, uh, emphasis of all the ironies and things that I would want to emphasize and stuff. So, uh, that, that, that works. So there has to be a confrontation. He, he would, he would have to summon Olway, uh, to talk to him. Which is cool. That's fine. All right. So are you guys ready? Watch this. Brace yourselves. Slide two. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, summary, yep. Uh, no one's expecting an escalation of the violence. Yes, absolutely. I don't think that even Feanor is planning to fight the Teleri. He's just going to take their ships. He's ready to. Right, he's uh, he's 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 uh, he's resolved. Right, he's sufficiently resolved that he is prepared to fight. Literally prepared to fight. Like they have weapons and armor and stuff. Um, but uh, he he's not just going to come in and, and start attacking them. His first plan is just to take the ships. Because I would think that even Fanor would understand that drawing a sword and stabbing another elf with it is a big deal. Like, that that's a boundary that you don't cross lightly. Um, even Feanor is not so lost that he doesn't understand that basic point, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... They have their discussion. Fanor kind of goes off in a tiff, and they they come down. By the way, I, so um, so you guys were suggesting where all these notes are. These notes are drawn from your discussions on the uh, on the discussion boards, which is great. Rely very heavily on you guys, uh, and I, I always love uh, uh, interacting with your ideas and suggestions here. Um, the Teleri set guards on the ships just in case. Oh, wait, I don't want to do that, though. Because I don't want the Teleri even to be thinking... To the Teleri, the idea that the Noldor are going to come and steal the ships should be, like, unthinkable. Like, this never occurs to them that that would possibly happen. So there, there would be some Teleri on the ships, right? Um, just because they'd be on them, right? Or near them. But I don't think they're guarding them. Um, because I think it should be literally unthinkable to them that that's what's going to happen. Um, so we could even have a ship taken without violence, right? Um, 
because it's only then. It's only when the Noldor, when like the first of the Noldor sees a ship and start taking it away that the Teleri even acknowledge the concept um, that uh, um, that 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 could happen. Holy cow! Sorry, wait a second. Breaking news in a sense. Timothy Fisher was just saying that uh, I didn't. I didn't realize. I didn't realize the date. Um, yes. Do you guys realize Silmarillion that the Silmarillion was published forty years ago today? I didn't know that. I didn't. I, I, I didn't know the day and month of its publication. I'd forgotten. If I ever knew that, I had forgotten it. Wow. Yeah, wow. I just saw that as well. Yeah. Um. Uh, I, I mean, we totally meant to do this. Absolutely, yeah. That's why we postponed last week in order to have a, a, a session on the 40th anniversary. Yeah. We should go back and re-record our introduction. It's, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. That's pretty sad. That is pretty sad that we didn't even remember that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, Tom, Tom Hillman just posted it on his blog. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we are. Cool. Um, anyway, okay. Um, who? I would think that, therefore, I would think that the fighting is started by the Teleri. But the Teleri don't use deadly force or attempt to use deadly force. I think that's consistent with the text. It says when the the I mean, one could argue that the Noldor started the yeah. violence in the sense that they started by by um, uh, uh, you know <clears throat> seizing the Teleri's ships. Yeah, and then the Teleri respond by intervening, and then there's some pushing and shoving, and the Teleri start throwing the Noldor overboard. Right, right. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's what their their impulse would be to to fight, but you know to to yeah. to oppose those who are stealing their ships, um, but not to kill them. You know they don't draw weapons, they don't shoot them right away. Um, yeah, yeah, they throw they they throw them overboard and stuff. They 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 would grapple with them, they'd punch them, but they wouldn't. Um, uh, they would because you know, they don't even have many weapons. They're certainly not carrying yeah. any weapons. The random Teleri that are around in the harbor are not armed. It's interesting. It's interesting to note that that like the text of the published Silmarillion says um, the Teleri withstood him and cast many of the Noldor into the sea. Then swords were drawn and a bitter fight was fought. Um, but then later, you know, like that text, like swords were drawn, implies or at least the image it conjures up is of, of elves on both sides drawing yes. swords. Yes. But then later in the text, they clarify that, like, well, actually, the Teleri didn't have any swords. <laughs> I don't have any swords to draw. Yeah, completely one-sided drawing of swords. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. It is funny how that how that comes across there. Who who kill who who kills the first? Do we have Fanor kill the first person? Fanor. He's got to, right? Fanor, one of his charming sons. Yeah, Caranthir. Yeah, have him do it. No, I, 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 I it's, it's got to be Feanor. It's got to be Feanor. Feanor draws his sword, and and is it always that he kills? I don't 
don't know. I feel like the always. I feel like that should be a dramatic. Yeah, we've got to escalate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it I feel like it should be Feanor slaying some hapless servant guy. Yeah. Like just some poor maybe even like a young like a younger Teleri just yes. to make it really kind of gruesome and tragic. Exactly. Some like some like, you know, yeah, like uh 12-year-old looking kid who was on the boat, you know. Uh and uh uh and and goes for him, you know. Tries to push Feanor overboard and Feanor stabs him. And everyone should be shocked, right? The Teleri, yeah. the Noldor, everybody uh, should be shocked at that point. Um, even even Fanor, I think. Should yeah, be kind of even Fanor, even Fanor is shocked. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, oh, see, look, we're whipping through things now. Okay. Um, several important points. Who kills Alway? Fingolfin's sword needs to be broken in the battle in the intense discussion of, Fan- of Fingolfin's sword. And I love this. I remember we talked about Fingolfin's sword breaking and getting reforged uh, as, uh, uh, as Ringil later on, right? The ice sword after the crossing of the Helkaraxa. Um, so this, that's great. I love that. And we talked about the breaking of Fingolfin's sword at the, uh, at the Kinsling. But hang on. Let's, let's, let's worry about Fingolfin a little bit later. Let's think about the overall thing first. Okay. There is that arch. Hirongo is reminding us of the arch mentioned in Unfinished Tales, that there's an arch over the, like, end of the harbor, like, that they have to go out. Um, they can't... Teleri can't be throwing rocks. That's not a thing. They would not destroy the ships. Um, I mean, of course, if you were just trying to, to prevent, prevent an enemy from leaving the, har- leaving the harbor uh, and you had a, a vantage point from above, throwing rocks down in order to try to poke, poke holes in the ships and and uh, and sink them is a thing that you would do, but not if those ships were the most precious thing that you had. So, the Teleri are never going to do violent, are going to do anything that would harm the ships. Um, their focus would be now they would be shooting. Um, that's where the archers would come in, right? The flow of the battle would have to be well, because if you think about it, how could it even work? There are ships in the harbor, the Noldor. The, the Fanorians come onto the ships and start taking the ships away. Fights break out on individual ships. There are some ships, and there would be some ships that had been idle, right? The, there was nobody on them, and the Noldor just take them out. There are others which have Teleri on, on or near them, and you've got fights on the docks and, and, and on the ships um, breaking out. But the Noldor would eventually... So some ships would still be docked, and you would see Teleri fighting up onto them from the docks. There would be others which have been gone off, and there's fighting on board the ships in that are at, out afloat in the harbor. Between the Teleri and the Noldor, there would be some which are totally Noldor-dominated. What would the Teleri do? The Teleri would... Their first impulse would not be to go run for bows and start picking off the Noldor, because again, their impulse, it's going to take them a while to escalate to we want to kill the Noldor, right? So the first thing they would do is try to get to their ships, so they'd be taking other boats and other ships, right? So, so there'd be some ships with the Teleri, other smaller boats that they would have that they would be, you know, like going out and coming up alongside the other the, the their ships and climbing up onto them, right? So it would be mostly hand-to-hand 
in, the, in that kind of a context. We do know that they have bows, and again, I think it would take them a while, a while to escalate to that point. So that's how I see the arch playing in, right? Um, it's on the arch above the, that archers form up on the arch, right? So you've got this kind of gateway at the edge of the harbor, and some of the Teleri have gone to get bows, because bows are the only lethal weapons that they own, right? And that's where they line up. So they line up to... to like The last line of defense for the Teleri is, if they have to, they will shoot the Noldor as they sail towards and under the arch that goes over the, ed- the end of the harbor, right? Um, but they don't do it until then. They're still, like, doing nonviolent fisticuffs on board the ships with the Noldor prior to reaching that point. So to me, that seems to be the significance of the... It works tactically anyway for the archers to be up above on the arch shooting down at the at the men on the ships. So from a, from a purely battle tactics standpoint, it makes sense. Um, and I also like it as sort of the last line of defense. That escalation to lethal counter-strikes is the very final move that the Noldor... Or the, sorry, that the Teleri take... Um, when it's clear that nothing else is going to is going to work. Um, sorry, non-lethal fisticuffs, not non-violent fisticuffs. Fisticuffs is always violent. I meant non non-lethal. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah, that was a, that was a non-violent fisticuffs doesn't really work very well. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Within this context. How does Olway die? How and where does he die and from whom? He has to be one of those... He can't be on the arch shooting, so he's got to be on a boat. It's got to be Feanor, doesn't it? Yes. He just had the confrontation with Feanor, so what he would do is get in a boat and go after the ship that Fanor's on, right? Yeah, he would seek him out. He would seek Fanor out and be like, stop this madness, Fanor, right? Um, and Fanor would end up killing him. Um, Do we think, would he, is he, I, I, I'm leaning toward he confronts Fanor, but doesn't fight him. Right. And I'm thinking that when Olway is killed, because Fanor would be in one of the foremost ships, Fanor's ship would probably be first out, first out of the harbor, right? So I'm thinking that Fanor's, um, Fanor's killing of Olway on board that ship, that's when the Teleri start shooting, right? They see Olway killed. And that's when they that's when they begin the use of lethal force against the Noldor with their bows. Yeah, I like it. Um, I like it. They they restrain themselves right up until that moment, and then then that's when they let loose. Now, how does Fingolfin fit into this? Fing- so, remember the general setup. We have the three waves of the of the Noldor, right? The Feanorians the people of Fingolfin, who are the most numerous, and the people of Finarfin in the back. Finarfin and his people don't show up until after the battle is completely over. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, everything is done. So the, the people of Finarfin do not take part in the battle. 
the people of Fingolfin do, and that's the tragedy, right? They come in and they find the battle already joined, and their interpretation is that the 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 Teleri were set to ambush the Noldor by the Valar, right? The Val- this is the this is the the Valar's counterstroke is that the the Noldor have been ambushed by the Teleri, and that's why some, but though not all, of the people of Fingolfin join in the fight and kill. Uh, you know, and therefore are guilty of the blood of the kinslaying, um, and Fingolfin has to be involved in that. Um, Marielle suggests maybe this isn't, um, maybe this is the moment that Fingolfin arrives. Fingolfin arrives just as the the arrows start coming down. Um, so when Fing- that, and Marielle, that makes great sense, right? Because he'd see that because it's very visible, right? So they arrive down at the harbor, and what they see is the Feanorians on board the ships and then and the Teleri shooting down at them from the from the the mouth of the harbor right so it looks like an ambush it looks almost like an ex- like here are the the Noldor just sailing in the ships and and uh, and they're being shot down by the Teleri so the the Noldor so the people of Fingolfin who are not on board the ships Right, who are almost never on board the ships. They're almost never going to see the decks of those ships at any point. Right? Um, they don't get on ships. They don't go down to the keys in the harbor. They go around and they attack the archway. Right? Um, so they lead. That's where the the people of Fingolfin fight. Is that they drive the Teleri off the arch? The archers who are up on the uh, uh, the, the the arch over the harbor. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike wants at least one ship to be burned by accident. Um, and that that would be a, a better trigger for the Teleri. Like, w- one of the ship goes up in flames, and that's when the Teleri start shooting. There's an appeal to that idea. Um, but, but, but I don't... But here's why I don't like it. I don't like it because I want the visual image of one of the gorgeous swan ships in flame to wait. I, I, I don't want to have that image until later on. The swan ships in flame has to be that like horrifying, tragic image that is associated with the later on thing. I don't want to anticipate it in that way. Yeah, we shouldn't use it this early. Yeah, yeah. And Tony, you're absolutely right that... The fact that Fingolfin's engagement in the battle is explicitly to, like, rescue Feanor and his sons, right? Um, as they're being peppered with arrows from above by the archers and maybe wounded and everything, makes the betrayal of Fingolfin and his people by Feanor the more uh, horrible, the more cruel. Um Okay. Oh yes, Mario reminds me that Irame has to die. Yes, that's true. Um, that's true. But let's see. Hang on a second. Um, are we okay with that idea of you know? Dave said, "Do you like the idea of?" Uh, Fingolfin and his people coming up and fighting on foot with the people in the arch? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I was thinking, I mean, the only other alternative you could imagine is that uh, Fingolfin 
like uh, maybe Fingolfin kills Olway in order to save Fane, save Feanor, which would be kind of a nice tragic thing to do. Right. But I think I think I think the plan that we have right now is works better. I like the idea that Olway doesn't actually fight back or attack. That he's killed in cold blood by Feanor. And um, and that's the most sensible way to draw the Teleri into the to to to, to yeah like like it's hard to imagine uh, a better if we if we if we have Fing Golfin kill Alway then the fighting has to start for some other reason and it's not clear what that would be so so I think so I think this is a good for Fing Golfin I think this works equally well that they come in like because they have to come in seeing the Teleri fighting bad like. They can't come into the battle while the Teleri are still, you know, getting slaughtered uh, without fighting back. There's no way they're going to come into that and say, "Aha! Look, the the Teleri have been sent to waylay us without weapons." Right. <laughs> right. The worst, the worst ambush ever. <laughs> the worst ambush ever. <laughs> right. Yeah. The bad news is the Valar have sent an, an, an ambush for us. The good news is it's an extremely ill-conceived ambush. So that's 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 good anyway. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but if they see if they see them raining down arrows from from a fortified position like on the, yes. the arch or something, then yeah, they they might that starts to look a lot more like you know that looks like, like an ambush. look we're we're going on ships and they're pelting us with arrows on our way out. What yes. the heck, man? What the heck, man? So. Exactly right. As far as far as Fingolfin could know, this could be a double cross, right? I mean, Perhaps, they yeah. they they don't know that the Teleri um, didn't like. Say that they would take them in the ships, and now they're they're. I mean, the the Singulfin could suspect that the Teleri are like doing the red wedding to the Noldor here, right? Oh yeah, we'll take you in our ships, and then once we have you out in the harbor, we'll kill you all, right? It could look like that uh, from where from where Fingolfin is standing. Um. Now for Irame, uh, so reminder. Irame is the sister, right? She is the daughter of of uh, of of Finway. She's she's Fingolfin's sister. Um, I like having her killed on the arch. She would be with Fingolfin, right? I think she could be with Fingolfin, uh, and could uh, and could die up on the arch. Um. Yes. Okay. I th- that seems to me the most logical purpose for Irame's death. I, I don't want to get in the business of just killing people for fun. Um, there has to be a cause for her death, and this I think is the cause. Even when he sees the ambush, it's not going to be very natural for Fingolfin to resort to lethal force. Right, he would oppose them. He would that he would want to get up on the arch and stop the archers shooting the 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 Feanorians makes all kinds of sense. That he would go out with with sword in hand and be chopping Nold in his have his first impulse to be to run down and start chopping Teleri un, otherwise unarmed Teleri to pieces. That's not intuitive, right? Why would Fingolfin no. do that? Um, yeah. Answer: His sister was just shot, right? Um, so they're, they come running over toward, they haven't drawn their weapons, right? But they go running up towards the arch uh, uh, to what? Reason with, maybe restrain the archers. 
who are uh, uh, and then the archers turn and fire on them and his sister Irame is killed right next to him in front of him with him right um, and that's what turns the people of Fingolfin to lethal force and why they end up drawing swords and shedding blood um, yes yes um, that works and Tony has suggested, I don't know, Dave, I don't know what you think of this. Tony uh, Mead was suggesting that uh, Fingolfin should break his own sword after the battle in remorse. I kind of like that. I like that. That's a good, that's a good idea. Because the, the, like the archetypal image of the sword breaking, the primary precedent we have for that is Elendil, right? Um, you know, we have a strong Tolkienian precedent of the symbolic significance of a king wielding a broken sword, right? Or, or, or the, the king's sword breaks when he falls, right? It's it's a death thing, right? And so for him to have his sword broken, we, we can carry it off in various other ways, um, but to have his sword break in battle sends... And, it could be made to work, but I like the remorse thing that it's like he, because remember he's gonna he's already kind of abdicated, right? Um, and 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 he's like not gonna be king. Fanor's gonna be king, right? He's 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 following where his brother leads, um, and so that's another way in which the symbolic breaking of his own sword, um, you know, also kind of works. So yeah, I I, I do like uh, I do like the the. Uh, you, know, you guys already had Finarfin breaking his sword. Nah, but see, but Finarfin's sword doesn't need to break. Fingolfin's sword needs to break. Finarfin is going to break his sword. Finarfin's going to chuck away his sword, right? Um, that's what. That's how. It was. I mean, Fanor is, or Finarfin is going to react in grief, but his response would not be to break his sword. It would just be to throw away his sword. To, 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 I mean, and that's how I. That's this. This like symbolically, that's what I imagine. As Finarfin comes running down in grief to confront what's happening, he is just distancing himself from the entire thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, I don't like. If if I said that before, forget it. I, I want. I want. I want. If somebody's going to break their sword, it's got to be Fingal because it's significant. He's breaking the sword with which he's committed uh, this crime, right? So it's a sign of his remorse and his repentance. The damage is done, right? But but he it shows his attitude towards it, right? Because the three attitudes are very different. Feanor, unrepentant, right? Uh, guilty and unrepentant. Uh, Fingolfin, guilty and repentant. Finarfin, innocent and horrified, right? Um, and just reacting in revulsion against the entire thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Nick asks, why does he make Ringil from that sword then? We'll see, but that's the thing. He's under the curse, and he has to reconcile himself. Like, I, so, it's a great question. So, why would he, if he's broken his sword, why doesn't he cast away the pieces? Why, do, why would he keep the pieces and then make his new sword out of them? Because that's a perfect symbol for his life, right? He is an exile now. He is go- he. Why doesn't he turn around? And go- I mean, so Nick, I would answer that question with another question. Why doesn't he turn around and go back to Valinor? Right? He doesn't. 
he continues on to Middle-earth, despite the fact that he knows he's done wrong, despite the fact that he knows his brother is a freak show and is leading them into... Like, the, the, they, he might, they might have been convinced, they might have been swayed in Tyrion, right? By the time they're marching up the coast, that's over, right? That brief persuasion is done. He resolves to go for different reasons. And so he makes his old sword into a new sword, which he's going to pledge to use in different ways, and he's going to have... But, you know, but he, he's going, right? Um, to break his sword and then throw it away would mean he would... Be, it would be like turning back, right? But he's not going to turn back. Um, uh, so, no, I think he's repentant for what he's done. I think he does repent for what he's done. Um, but he doesn't repent the going to Middle-earth, right? He still needs his sword. He just, he repented using it against the Teleri, right? He recognizes the evil that he's done, um, uh, and yet he will have need of a sword. And so he reforges his sword. His sword is reforged in the, uh, and of course, ultimately with the whole, with the the ice thing, right? Uh, uh, That's why I love having it reforged um, like, you know, after he crosses the Helcaraxa. Um, so yeah, that works. Okay. Um, so, but anyway, uh, uh, Nick, you were asking for clarification of the sequence with Olway. I don't think this is hard at all. So again, quick recap of the thing, right? The Nolor come down to the docks. Some Teleri are on ships. Some ships are sitting idle. Fin, uh, Feanor steps onto a ship. Probably like an unoccupied... No, there has to be occupants because you've got to kill one of them. So there's like just a few people on the ship. They get on the ship and they, they go out. Several. So from the top view, right in the harbor, we've got some Noldor out on ships. Some are still fighting fisticuffs with Teleri who are coming in and, and who begin to rush forward onto the docks. And some of them, uh, when where the ships are still connected to the docks, the Teleri are fighting from the docks to, to throw the... Uh, the Noldor into the harbor and regain control of their ships, but some of the ships have already left uh, the docks and are out in the harbor. Feanor is on one of those. Many of the Teleri, and always in the lead of these, jump into smaller boats that are there in the harbor and go out in pursuit of uh, the ships that are still in the harbor. Right? Um, Because remember, the Noldor aren't going to be very good at making these things work, so they're not going to be making a lot of speed out of the harbor. They're going to be kind of floating around a lot, right? Um, they're going to be kind of awkward in navigating. So the 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 Teleri have plenty of time. Olway and the other Teleri have plenty of time to jump into boats and go pursue those. And then they're climbing up the side. It's like pirates, except fewer tattoos. And uh, Olway is one of these. So Olway boards the ship that Fanor is on. And Fanor's in the foremost ship because he was the first one to, t- to get a ship and to take off. And so he is confronting Fanor on the deck of the foremost ship. That's when Fanor kills him in sight of the elves who have their bows up on the arch. And that's when they begin shooting. So uh, the sequence of that, I think, um, I think, uh, I think, I think works. Um, but uh, uh, so, yeah, so that, that's. And then Fingolfin comes down uh, and sees the the archers shooting, and so he his people come around, possibly from both sides, uh, to try to get up and uh, to to go. They wouldn't come from both sides; they'd just come from one side to fight their way up onto the arch and restrain the people. And then the archers shoot at them, and Irame dies, and he goes, and they end up killing a whole bunch of the Teleri, and uh, 
uh, and then the, uh, you know Fanor passes under them. And imagine the really significant look, right? That is exchanged. Imagine the complexity of the look exchanged between Fanor on board the ship, looking up at Fingolfin, looking down at him from the arch, right? And there's Fingolfin stained with the blood of the Teleri up on the arch with, like, you know, and the blood of his sister who died in his arms and their sister, right? Fanor's half-sister, who died in their arms and Fanor looking up at him with the corpse of Olway lying at his feet and a bloody sword still in his hand, too, right? And that's really... That's kind of... That's that's kind of good stuff, right? Which leads us to our last... So that's good. Do you, do you have anything to add to that, Dave? Nope. I'm on board. I like this. This is coming together. It's going to be pretty. It's going to be pretty horrific on screen. Yeah, yeah, but not just like pure horror, right? I mean, that that nope. this all of you know in every direction. This enables us to really play up the tragedy rather than the yep. the, the mere. Horror. And then, of course, Van Arfen comes down afterwards, and he sees this the you know people dying on both sides, and he is equally horrified by everything. Um, I have this image, this visual image of Finarfin running down towards the harbor, just like throwing, like taking off his helmet and throwing it, drawing his sword and chucking it, just like removing his his uh, his warlike gear as he comes down and never putting it on again. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, I, in one minute, last question: Do we? How do we end the episode? Do we end the episode there, with the Noldor sailing out from under the arch while the people of Fingolfin, covered with blood, are standing up on the arch? Or do we have the storm by Uinin? I think we save the storm. We I save the we storm? End it with them sailing away in a tide of blood. Yeah, it's kind of... That image that I was just, that I was just having of the... of uh, Finarfin and Fingolfin... Uh, exchanging troubling glances, <laughs> right as uh, as he's passing beneath the arch of the of the of the harbor. That kind of sounds like a roll credits moment, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's kind of hard to be there. So then we'd have to have the reaction of the Valar in the next episode. Yeah. Okay. All right. Which leads me to segue smoothly. To okay, so there are several things we didn't get to. We didn't get to Galadriel at all. We'll have to come back to Galadriel next time because uh, I agree that's an important we still that's an important point we still need to cover we need to talk about Goadriel uh, we'll, we're turfing the Valor to next time so okay so my questions for next time do we have any Noldor material in episode 3 or do we stay exclusively in Beleriand which is what we're planning to do in episode 3 I think we now have to have some Noldor material in episode 3 if we're saving the storm so we need to think about therefore how that connects um how how are we going to do that and segue to Beleriand in the same episode? How does that? How, how are we going to manage that? So think about balancing uh, the trend there. I promise we will come back. Goadriel is still an episode two thing. Um, we will come back. I promise we'll come back and think about that next time at the beginning. Second question: What is the state of Thingol's court at the beginning? When we do go back to Beleriand, what are things like? Do we do we imagine joining the court of Thingol and Melian? when it's like when they've been really peaceful and the, the their traditional peace has been shattered um, are they troubled in some way do we have some is there some issue going on right uh, among the people of of uh, of Thingol what what what's our beginning state of uh, the Balerian folks um, and uh, 
we're, we're going to need to do Angband, right? We're going to need to show the attack by Sauron. We're, we're, we're unveiling orcs, really, for the first time, right? This is going to be the first big orc attack. Um, so how do we how do we do? Do we want to spend a lot of time in Angband? Do we want to have conversation between Morgoth and Sauron? Do we want to show Sauron deciding what to do, or do we want to just show this from the Beleriandic side? Do we want to just have uh, show things from Thingol and Melian's side, and then all of a sudden there are orcs and they have no idea who they are and what they are, or do we show it from the do we show this stuff happening from the Angband side? Um, and then fourth and final, related to that other one, we had talked about Bulldog, Bulldog as the like orc king, right? The sort of little demigod of orcs, right? Whose job who's like recruited by Melkor in order to be the captain of the orcs. What's his role? And how does that work? And are we going to introduce him here or do we unveil him later on? Again, since this is the first time we're unveiling orcs, I was, you know, wanting to ask the bulldog question and and I, I have to say I don't I don't yet fully I, I don't I don't I don't feel fully comfortable with Bulldog yet. That is there's there's I get Gothmog and Sauron and Sauron's posse, and I see how all those things work together. I'm not 100% sure where Bulldog fits yet. Uh, uh, so I want to I want to work that out and think about how we want to represent that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Nick asks, uh, are we going to interweave the Balerian and the Noldor plots? Doesn't that create the same problem I wanted to avoid at the beginning uh, by not doing that uh, when we were doing the outline? Uh, yep. Yeah. Oh, Nick, that's exactly what we need to be thinking about. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's uh, that's uh, question number one that I would like to see what you guys think about for next time. Um, my plan had been to finish the Noldor Kinslaying story and then shift to Beleriand sort of more or less permanently. But now that we've done the Kinslaying episode, I think we have to. We can't end it there, but it's not over yet. So we need to think of one way or another to shift that stuff. Maybe one thing that we do is push the storm back. Maybe the storm doesn't happen right away. Um, maybe the storm is the beginning of the next phase. Maybe we do leave the Noldor behind after this and just go back to Beleriand. I don't know, but and this is what we have to think about. So um, think about this for next time and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that in our, in our next session. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, um, we're late today, but this was a, 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 an, an unexpectedly uh, deep and, and interesting and unexpected ways uh, conversation today. Thank you for joining me in my ruminations today. That was a really, really interesting question that I've never really thought about before. So I felt like I learned a lot and, uh, uh, and I really appreciate uh, your help with all this uh, today, everybody. So I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed. Mm-hmm.